This episode of Forging Flame is brought to you by Hotel Tango Distillery. We're proud to have the support of the nation's first combat-disabled, veteran-owned distillery. Hotel Tango boasts a proud product lineup of nine different spirits and liqueurs, including a six-year, soon-to-be ten-year reserve bourbon, a two-year bourbon, a straight rye whiskey with a whole lot of spice, vodka, gin, my favorite, rum, limoncello, orange cello, and a delicious cherry liqueur. Those are available practically nationwide. By now, Hotel Tango is distributing to retailers in Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, Texas, Wisconsin, Missouri, Nebraska, Louisiana, South Dakota, North Dakota, Florida, Alaska, Illinois, California, Georgia, Washington, and military bases all throughout the country and world. You can visit HotelTangoDistillery.com for more information about the distillery, uh, where you can get it. You can also go to shop.hoteltangowhiskey.com if you're in one of those states that allows for liquor to be sent by mail. Hit them up, check out the lineup, order something, and even enter promo code FORGINGFLAME for 10% off of your booze purchase. And, well, if your state don't allow that, then sorry about you. That's hoteltangowhiskey.com. Welcome to Forging Flame, the podcast where we discuss everything really about creativity with every single type of creative mind that we can get our grubby little paws on. We we just like talking about creative stuff and how it happens and who does it and why and yeah, you know, all the other weird and dark stuff that falls in between all that happy generic stuff that i just said today <laughs> ryan you're not allowed to laugh off microphone you're i'm still you're, on for right now yeah you're, i'm you're, just off camera yeah you're sitting off camera for maybe moving forward we're trying out a bit of a new format visually yeah we're getting me off the screen ryan just couldn't get uh his headband hair to to work right so yeah the the hair wasn't working so i'm just gonna be in the ether right now so well, I, of course, am Nick Hinton, and that voice is Ryan Selick. Selick. That's Ryan me. Selick's. That's me. Yep. And today, we, I, us, have Kim McCann. One of the, one of the, God, how do I even put this? One of the, the most immediately, like, glaringly bright souls I've, I've ever met. Just huh. the type of person who, at least for me and the the sorts of shit that I'm into, um, the type of person who just immediately like struck my interest in a in a deep and dramatic way. And what's really funny about that is um, years ago, uh, one of my my dearest friends, a guy that I've known for a real long time uh, by the name of Johnny Mullins, mm-hmm. um, had a, a super cool job as a as an actor of sorts. And, uh, I believe he, he met you there and pretty much immediately was like, Hey, you really need to meet my friend, Kim. You guys are kind of the same person in a lot of ways. And I think that you'll fall in love with her. And 
we never really got the opportunity, I think, except for, for once just very, very briefly. Um, and then a couple of years later, here I am working for, for good old Hotel Tango when uh, one, of my, one of my coworkers and, and friends here, Thomas, says, oh my God, wait until you meet this woman, Kim. You are going to fall in love. You guys remind me so much of one another. And, and I didn't put two and two together until I saw your face and recognized you. And then we got to talking, and I, sure enough, I, I, I fell in love. So, wow, Kim, who are you and why do we care? <laughs> uh, on the tales of that introduction, <laughs> I don't even know what to say. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, so we met, like, super briefly uh, when I came to Hotel Tango with uh, Thomas to, I don't even know why we showed up here discussing something. Something collaborative, I, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and we met, and I didn't recall meeting you, but I think we met because Johnny um, mm -hmm. was doing uh, a play that I wrote at, for Indie Friends. That's right. And so we had, like, met you know, after a performance or before a performance or something uh, did, like that. I, did I actually, did I, did I work like stage crew for that? I don't think so. Hmm. Like I, like my theater, uh, experience is pretty like, I don't, I don't belong well with, <laughs> <laughs> with other people. And so, um, uh, like my collaborative theater experience is pretty small. Like usually when I, in the past when I've done Indie Fringe, which mm -hmm. is the, you know, um, the fringe festival here in Indianapolis, um, it is, uh, it's small production. Like I'm doing it, like I'm writing it, directing it, producing it. Most of the time I'm acting in it. Um, but sometimes, as was the case here, yeah. uh, I had two actors in the show. Um, and, yeah, no, it was just like, there was like, there were like two props and, and like, and two actors. And that was it. So I don't think you worked. Uh, you might have worked like another production I, that he was in, but. Yeah, he, he was doing, do you, did you ever meet Cheryl Fessmeyer? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was, he was doing one that I think she was directing at uh theater on the square. Yeah. And, but I did, I did go and see, um, the one with just the, the two male actors. Yeah. It, it was as is my want to mm -hmm. title everything really ridiculously. It, it, the title of that piece, I'm almost like embarrassed <laughs> to say, but it was called, uh, the vainglorious Mr. Pugh. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. And, and what does that mean? Uh, Vainglorious or mm -hmm. Mr. Pew? Um, <laughs> no, so Vainglorious is just somebody, it's, it's, it's a, someone who has a lot of hubris, mm. who, who thinks and speaks well of themselves. I mean, there might be a public figure nowadays who we could mm. say the same thing about being Vainglorious. I can't think of one. Yeah, no. Yeah, I got nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it was basically, it was sort of like an ode to, uh, uh, waiting for Godot, okay. which, you know, like I love Beckett. I love Ionesco, the absurdists, the playwrights who, who make a piece of theater that, uh, takes you to a place that just pisses you off that you're there, you know, <laughs> like they don't, they don't set it up right. They don't, you know, wrap it up right. It's just, it's sort of like you're thrown in and then you're just sort of like, 
what the fuck was that? And it's like, <laughs> yeah, great, super. That's that's what I wanted your experience to be. So, yeah. Uh, I, that, I <laughs> recall in very, very recent history our discussion on uh, – I'm thinking of leaving that, that movie yeah. that just popped up on Netflix. And, uh, yeah, I can, I can yeah. see the, the, the correlation there. Yeah. I mean, like for me personally, that is one of the things that I love about art. I love art that immediately emotionally resonates with me. Number mm. one, it pisses me off. Sure. It makes me angry. It makes me question. It makes me, you know, I'm enraptured by it. I'm pulled in. But then it also doesn't, like, take my hand and, like, guide me through it. Mm. Like, it's an experience that the artist just, like, kind of says, like, here's, here's the thing. Like, I intend for you to have an experience here, but, but your experience is what it is. And it's not, it's not my scheduled experience. It's not what I need you to have happen. Um, it's just sort of, like, what happens to you. And that's why, like... Uh, I'm thinking of ending things was exactly that. Like, that's what I love about Charlie Kaufman's films is that, um, like, he's like, I have an idea of what I want this to be, but also like whatever your experience is, that's completely valid. Right. Like I hate art that is like, no, this is what it means. And if you don't, if that's not what you get from it, then you haven't experienced it. Right. Like (laughs) fuck right off. No, that's not what art is. Right. And so, yeah, like that's, that is that movie it threw me but like in a super good way yeah there it was and i I could never hope to break it down as eloquently as you did but uh it it very very much throughout the whole thing even though at no point in time until the very very end did i have anything close to what felt like a grasp of what the hell i was experiencing it still was just so just so in engaging on a on a on a surface and emotional level that was just so confusing that yeah i i i don't know how to articulate what it is about that that i really really enjoy but it it definitely is a one of the more beautiful and valuable experience in like experiences in, in cinema that I think that, that one similar to myself at least can have. So, yeah. I mean, that's what the, I, I mean, I'm, I'm nobody. I'm some schmuck, right? Like I'm just like living in the world and, and like I, there, there are artists that I like and there are paintings and there are movies and there's music and you know, all this stuff. And, and I'm just one of those people who, you know, I have my experience with it and that's what it is to me. Um, but like the art that's meaningful to me is the art that it isn't a complete little package that's all done up. Like I, I experience it and then I'm like, okay, that was great. Fantastic. Thanks for your <laughs> statement and your sentiment. And then you walk away from it. It's, sure. it's the stuff that makes you like still like two or three days later and you're like, what the, what the fuck was that? Like if you lose why? sleep over it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like where you just, you know, like like I finished watching that, that film and like, I immediately was like, what time is it? Do I have time to watch this again? Like, I want to, <laughs> I want to watch this again. Right. And like, for me, that says something about sure. the quality of that art because it had an effect on me. Right. And that's, you know, like your mileage may vary. Like that's yeah. going to be, everybody's experience is different. But for me, that's good art. 
So would you say just in terms of like the, the pantheon of what's available in terms of art material, right? Filmmaking, music, paintings and illustration. What is it? Is it acting and producing and screenwriting? I mean, would that, would you say that, that that is kind of the realm that you are most specifically drawn to? I mean, I know that, you know, you, you do, you do a lot with, you know, with, with the booze and cocktailing you, uh, I've seen, um, that you've written at least one amazing poem. So was, wait, that was your original writing, right? If I'm not mistaken, you posted something recently on social yeah, media that yeah. was just kind of, <laughs> kind of like shattering in a way, but would you say that the, that the, I don't even know what term to use, but just like acting and and uh like stage and screen is that is that your like what's my milieu yeah sure yeah <laughs> whatever that means i don't, I don't speak <laughs> french come like, on what's my genre like yeah. what's what's my what's my groove yeah uh i i think if i were to classify myself as anything i would classify myself as a writer okay um i've i've written since i was a little kid um but like i wasn't it was not until like my 20s that i ever really like shared any of my writing Mm. like it was something that I always did and was passionate about but like outside of like English class right where you have to turn in poems or a story or whatever I didn't really share it with people because it was like something that was mine and I didn't it was like you know it was like having like a little like a like a baby bird that you found right and like you take care of it and everything and then like to show it to other people is to like you're gonna lose it chances are it's not gonna be or like somebody's gonna be like, "That's not a fucking bird. That's a like, what is that?" Right? So I didn't, I didn't uh, share it around. And then I was, um, I was living in Colorado, in Boulder, in a house with like seven or eight other people. And there was a guy that uh, was a writer, <clears throat> or he wrote, or whatever, you know, whatever. In your twenties, when you don't really know who you are, and I really loved his writing and we were just like messing around one day and, and I shared something and he was like, Holy crap, this is really good. And I was like, Oh, Oh, (laughs) is it really like, it's okay. And he's like, yeah, this is really good. And so that was sort of like, for me, like a turning point to be like, okay, like there, there's some validity to this. Right. And so that was when I sort of embraced like, okay, I can do this. I can feel some confidence in this and explore this. And so Really, it started with, uh, like, short fiction, and then um, uh, it eventually sort of bled over into playwriting, which is really different. And then there was always, like, poetry on the side. Um, and then there was, like, a brief foray for a couple of years into, like, like fan fiction. Okay. Where I had, like... With fan like, fiction or slash fiction? No, I never wrote slash. Okay. <laughs> I always wrote gen as the, the terms go, right? There sure. was no slash, but it was a, it was like a slash heavy fandom. Um, but I never wrote slash and, uh, and was sort of like, like, I don't know if it still holds up now. Cause this is like a while ago, but if you were to go to that fandom and say like, who are some of the early writers? Uh, I'm fairly certain that if not, if not two, at least one of my stories would come up as like, this nice. was the story that got me into this fandom. What, what fandom specifically? <laughs> Lay it on us. 
oh my god because it's like one of those things where now like you invest so much time and energy and then you look back and you're like holy fuck man what was i doing all that time like it was a lot of perfect strangers wasn't it oh man (laughs) it was uh the supernatural fandom Oh, okay so like i haven't watched the show for probably four years Mm. it's still going i think it's in its final it's in its final season and it's like a it's like a 15 year run wow which is really crazy but there was something early on about the show that was really um pure and it had this really fantastic dynamic uh between these two brothers and then like this this um this sort of like father figure who had been like super impactful but also like a real dickhole, you know, <laughs> like, and there was something about that, that for me, like really struck a personal chord. And I think that even when I was like in college and, and taking, uh, I took a couple of writing classes where the professor would like read, uh, selected stories and then like you would discuss them, but it was anonymous so that you didn't, you know, you didn't, you could talk, you could critique without hurting the person's feelings. Sure. And invariably, whenever my stories were read, the discussion was always like, well, he did this or he, the way that he did this. And so I realized that I wrote from a kind of a masculine um, place or, or a perceived masculine place. And so there was something about that, that show early on in those first few years that really spoke to like something I wanted more of that universe built out. And that was really what fan fiction is for. I mean, yeah. and uh, also for slash, like sure. for people who have like, just like want a little you, more. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> your, you know, your thing is not necessarily my thing, but you're welcome to your thing. That's what's really great about fandom is right. like it gets weird. Like in so many beautiful ways, though. I, I love that <laughs> yeah. there are like what could arguably be, um, you know, like labeled as weird people with just the right amount of like perviness that like. That's the thing that they think of. And then it blossoms like something generally like very well detailed and hyper articulate and like still very like true to form. And that's, that's amazing. Like hell, hell yeah. It again, not, not for me generally, Right. right. But I'll still read it. If I know you personally and like, you're like, Hey, I made this thing and like, it's kind of weird. I'm like, yeah, let me see that shit. Yeah. Like, great. Yeah. No, like I just, I, for me, when I was writing fan fiction, I was really like, I was trying to write really well. Sure. And I think, I, I mean, I owe a lot to that time period because I feel like I cut a lot of teeth in fan fiction because you, it was the first opportunity that I had really to like put my writing out there to like people who, who didn't give a shit about giving you honest feedback about it. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and some people were, you know, critical, but the majority of people were just like, this is really great. Or I really love this. Or, you know, like quoting back lines from the story to me, like, Oh my God, this line, like, and it really gave me a lot of, um, encouragement, but it also, there were, like, I took in, uh, like any good, like self-deprecating artist, I took in like all that critique and would just be like, shit, <laughs> like I'm so bad and I'm writing fanfic, like, oh, I'm a terrible person. Um, never had an original thought in your life. Right, exactly. <laughs> so I love those sort of thoughts. Those are great. But like, I mean, it was really, it was a growth period for me. Mm. And 
to be honest, like that fandom introduced me to, um, there are like friends that I met online through that fandom that I have to this day that are like some of my best friends. And that's, that says a lot, right? Yeah. No, like, I mean, it, that it, it's, and really, I mean, you know, you, you, we could like go off on a long tangent about community and, and the innate need for human beings to like congregate over literally fucking anything like right. we just need something to make us feel more connected and you know it, it can from from an outside perspective from the perspective of someone who like say someone who's just like super into team sports not to like diminish that as a thing like if it's your thing and it like gives you that sort of life fulfillment that doesn't make you shit on other people for what they like because it's mm -hmm. different then you know great awesome but like you know, easy, easy to write that sort of thing off without having an understanding of it. But seeing kind of on the, on the other side, not that I've ever really like kind of delved down the, the wormhole of any sort of specific fandom to write fiction around it. I, here's a peek behind the curtain. I cut my writing teeth on, uh, being in my face is probably turning real red on camera right now, but you know, to hell with it. I, uh, I spent a lot of time in my youth in fantasy role-playing, um, like the, the erotic version, uh, fantasy role-playing chat rooms um, where <laughs> the chat room would be verbally described as a physical space, uh, in this case, a bar. Um, everyone hung out at and interacted with one another inside the bar and then would, of course, you know, pair off and have their chat sessions. Um, and that was, that was essentially like a, like a, like a real time exercise in creative writing, uh, with a super pervy bent, but <laughs> at the same time, like, yes, there's a lot to be said about that, but, um, just having to, to think on the fly and actually write in a way, because, you know, if you're trying to turn somebody on, especially, someone who's nerdy enough to like be turned on by words in this sort of capacity, right? Like you have to stimulate their, you know, their, their brain. Like that's right. what it's all about. And so like using words, uh, you know, like I said, in real time, like that was actually great training for me, like just in terms of speaking with a voice and painting an image. Uh, so I'm, I'm really thankful for that. Yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, Hopefully, at this stage in the game, nobody's really going out of their way to diminish, like, getting involved in, in fandom. Like, with the prevalence of, like, <laughs> like casual cosplay. Like, my, my oldest daughter, casual cosplayer. She, like, she, like, I'll come home and she's wearing a costume, looking, like, top to bottom, like, her favorite anime character. And I'm like, what is happening right now? <laughs> like, I don't... I don't get it, but it's not for me and I don't have to get it to right. see the value and like that sort of creative expression. But so, and, and when I originally asked, I was asking more about uh, your consumption habits than like your actual artistry. I, I was trying to, to like slow play it into, into your own create oh. creation. But what, what is it that you, that you find yourself consuming the most in terms of like artistic media? Yeah, you know, it's really weird because I've always been one of those people who is, like, really reluctant to 
um, to consume a lot of stuff because I'm, I'm always afraid of, uh, like a subconscious influence yeah polluting the well right and which is really stupid because we consume stuff all the time and so it's just it's going to happen whether you expect it to or not so i would say that i'm like a i am like a a shallow end of the pool dabbler in lots of different there's like i go through like weird phases like i i would say that my consumption is more about like obsession so I, I hook on, I glom on to a particular TV show or, or film or filmmaker or writer or, um, you know, like a visual artist or a musician and I consume them until like, I'm just like, okay, okay I, I got to switch it out now. <laughs> just you know? wormhole real hard until you, until yeah. you're sick of it. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I, like I, I know that feeling. I do that so much with music, mm-hmm. but I also feel like there's like a certain part of me that feels like I learn a lot about that artist, right? Because I'm just like consuming their product and then like re-consuming it. It's like this, you know, like, uh, the word like leaves my brain, but like, you know, like when you like ingest it and then throw it up and then re ingest it, you know, (laughs) like, uh, there's a word for that. That's eloquent, eloquent. And I can't think of it right now. Not, not regurgitate, is it? Just chew in the cup. I think it is regurgitate, <laughs> which is such okay. a, yeah. like, oh my God, like that's such a simple word. And I just like completely <laughs> left my brain. But like, like, uh, for like the past month I have been like the only music that I've listened to is, um, uh, Hobo Johnson. Okay. Do you know, are you familiar with Peripherally Hobo aware. Yeah. So like I, uh, I heard a song of his and it just... It it just it, it was like one of those things that like it just like grabbed me and I was like holy shit I love this song, and so I went and like looked him up on Spotify and I was like I got I got to hear that song again like and, and then I need to hear that song like four more times <laughs> and then okay like now I'll listen to a couple of other things that he's done and then like I indoctrinate myself into that you know that artist but the thing that I love about that is. Like, he's a pretty young guy. Like, he's, like, early 20s. And I love that he's, uh, like, there's there's so many moments I find in his music, for me personally, where I'm just like, oh, he's figuring shit out right here. <laughs> like, I really like that. He's He is showing us how he's figuring shit out. And there's going to there's gonna come a point where there's growth from that. Right. And, like, I will be ready for that growth when it happens. And I'll be able to see that growth in that artist because I see, you know, the machinations of that. Sure. Like right now that excites me. So when it's like with writers or music or visual artists, when, when you can get to like, even if it's somebody who's like already blown up, like when you go in at the ground level and you kind of immerse yourself in that, it's really exciting to then sort of watch that. So, yeah, it kind of lends to like a deeper understanding of the human being behind it. Right. Because it's so easy to separate the, like the, the person from the end product, especially, you know, and in, in a modern society where everything is, is like just so like heavily pasteurized, um, when like it can be hard, especially when we're talking about something like music. Or, you know, filmmaking, you know, it can be really hard to find and not to not to discredit anyone's art or tastes. But in my mind, like there 
there are two primary categories of of like artistic works, right? And that's like what's made to drive like whatever business machine forward and like sell the most advertisements. And then there's what's made from like an absolutely pure place, you know, budgets and business be damned. Um, and I think that that, that that really, it can, it can be, it can be hard to find that, but when you can, and when you can pinpoint those, like, you know, that, that momentary peak behind the curtain where you can really see like who that human being is on the other side. And then, yeah, like to, to follow that and, and then like deepen that understanding and, and deepen your own appreciation. And, you know, maybe sometimes that musician evolves in a way that doesn't really fit your tastes as much anymore, but you know, having that like preexisting, um, you know, respect and I don't necessarily want to say like admiration, but on some level, you know, that's not an inaccurate term, but, but yeah, that's a, it's, it's kind of a special thing to get to take part in if you're present enough to be consuming your art on that level. Yeah. Which I don't know if everyone is, but you know, hopefully people are, are getting that same sort of experience in their lives. Cause it's pretty fucking cool. You know? Yeah. It, but also I would say like, it's not necessarily about being present. I think sometimes it's just about like having like a vaguely obsessive personality. Like, <laughs> sure. like it, it is sometimes just like, like counterintuitive to be like, I'm going to focus in on one artist, right. While all this other stuff is happening. <laughs> And like, I, yeah, I can't take that in. Like, I just, I just, I'm just going to do this. Like, I'm going to listen to this song 17 times today because it just makes me happy or whatever, you know, like. Sounds which, efficient to me. I mean, I, I think that there's something that I just, uh, you know, like I, I, I have had different points in my life where like, like efficiency is like, that's what's going to get you through. Like, sure. you know, like a bean frugal and like keeping your head down and just like, uh, like just pushing through, like that's, what's going to get you to the other side. Right. And so I think that there's, there's certain, just like anything in life when you have certain experiences and you're like, okay, that's, that's how it came out the other side. You're like, that's a model that I understand. And that's what I'm going to take forward for better, for worse. I mean, it doesn't, it, it's not always like a positive thing, but I think that's just sort of like, those are choices that, that we don't necessarily make, but get made for us that we choose to, to perpetuate. That's, that's fair. Okay. So back to, back to your own creation a bit. Mm -hmm. So you said that you started writing as a child. Mm -hmm. Um, my, the, the biggest part of my knowledge of, of what, what you've done or what you do is, is as a, as an actor in a museum, Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, some of the other, you know, kind of, kind of runoff side projects with mm-hmm. booze infusion and cocktailing and stuff, yeah. which speaks to, speaks to my heart just because that's the world that I kind of live and breathe in on the, yeah. on the, the Monday through Friday. But now what, is there any particular thing that you can really attribute your desire to? create and be creative too? Like, I mean, what, what drives that? That's like a really interesting question. I don't think that there's, uh, like a defining moment or like a trigger moment. Sure. You know, I think that like, I come from a family of, uh, I have two sisters and a brother. Um, and 
and a mom and a dad who, by and large, like, sorry, guys, but I wouldn't say that they're, like, creative people. So, like, my dad has some skills, like, he's, he, he does beautiful calligraphy and stuff like that, you know, and he has a, a background in, like, drafting. Uh, my brother does, uh, like, when he chooses to, can do some, like, super amazing, like, woodwork, but it's, like, a, you know, like a, a project, and then, like, he doesn't do it again. Sure. And my sister's, I, they can't be offended for me to say, like, they're, like, they'll do, like, a Pinterest project, you know, here and there. And, like, my mom would not ever call herself a creative person, although she did, uh, like, decorate cakes for, like, a couple of years, like, professionally. Wow. Um, but, but from a super young age, it was just, like, yeah, I need to, like, draw and paint and, like, write stuff down. And, and it didn't make... Like, I couldn't understand how other people were functioning. Like, well, like how do you not need to do this? Because this is extremely important to me. Um, I have, uh, like, a super active imagination and was constantly, like, world building in my head and, you know, like, devising, you know, stories and, and songs and poems. And, like, this is, like, like how how do you not need to do this? So it just, it's one of those things where I can't, say that there was something that happened that made me feel that way. It was just like from as long as I can remember, that was extremely important to me. Like I was one of those kids who had like an imaginary friend. Yeah. But I actually had like three imaginary (laughs) friends. Uh, And like my, my parents have told me that they were like, uh, like when I was like little, when my, my older brother and sister would be like in uh, elementary school before I was in school, that I would like disappear for a couple hours during the day. And like, I'd just like pop up and they're like, where were you? Like, oh, I was, I was hanging out with Comet and Tweety and Miss Ducky. Like <laughs> we were at school doing stuff and they're just like, yeah, okay. <laughs> like, you know, like I was having, like I was like in session with my imaginary friends, like, making shit happen so like i don't know if that's if that's just like mental illness which is (laughs) it's very possible but like from a very young age that was um creativity was just like the drive the need to create was just there just part of the root programming yeah Yeah. and now what what kid were you in the lineup so i have i'm it's a sort of weird thing. So I was the the baby, mm-hmm. right? So I have a, a, a sister who's four years older than me and a brother who's three years older than me. And then I have a sister who's 13 years younger than me. Okay. So we had like our sort of like uh, nuclear family and then a big pause and then my little sister shows up. But like all, the same parents, right? So same mom and dad, all yeah. of us, but just like this gap. Just floating, floating out there like Pluto, like not sure if she's really even a relative at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. Are you sure you're not just a drifter that we picked up along the way? Right. <laughs> it's weird. I mean, like it's super weird for her. Sure. So, like we 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 joke about it all the time. But she's she's like my two sisters sort of like bookend like mm-hmm. the rational bookshelf. Like right. Like they're both pretty grounded individuals. Yeah. You know, like with. Like my my older sister's super responsible. My younger sister's like super responsible. She's like a, a therapist, and like my older sister's like uh, like works for like a heart surgeon, you know. Like, and then there's like me and my brother who are just like he's like like 
who knows? And then I'm me. But I've always been like accepting of like, I'm the one who doesn't fit in and that's totally okay. Like I, you know, my parents would always be like, like creativity's fine and they would even support it. Like, oh, you want a paint set? Okay, like we'll get you a paint set. Like, oh, you want... You want a, a Super 8 camera for Christmas? Okay, yeah. Like, I don't know what you're going to do. Like, here's a Super 8 camera, right? You know, um, and they would be supportive in that way, but the, but there was always that message of, but this is just, like, what you do for fun. Like, you can't, like, art is, a, is an extracurricular activity, right? And so I was always like, no, 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 no. art is, like, that's what I want to do. And they're like, yeah. right, like, in your free time... <laughs> but you need to get a job. And I was like, but like, I want a, an art job. And they're like, that's, that's not a thing. <laughs> like, it doesn't exist. Um, so there was always that sense of like, for me, it was like, I don't care how complete, you know, bullshit the rest of my life is. I'm going to, I'm going to be doing art. Um, and, like that is my happiness. Like, sure. like I'll work a super crap job and I have, I've had a bunch of super terrible jobs, but like in my free time, it gave me the free time to do art or be writing or doing something creative. And so I was like, I'm cool with that. And my, you know, like my mom would always be like, I don't know how you can be happy when, you know, like you don't have like a nice house and I'm like, but like, but like I wrote a play and she's like, but that doesn't like you like you don't have nice things. Like I don't, this is a nice thing. Like, right. right? So like I, I grew up in a family that just like didn't get it except for, I had a couple of like relatives outside of my immediate family who were like artistic people. And those were the like two women in particular, like my, my maternal or my paternal grandmother and my paternal great aunt who were like super strong women and those were women that, like, as I get older, I realize the incredible influence that they had on me as a kid. That's, it's, you know, it's unfortunate to have, like, a like a parental situation where you don't have all of, the, like, the driving support that, you know, that that it might, you know, really take to, like, push you into, like, the, the upper stratosphere of... of creating for a career. Right. But I mean, you know, and, but that's, that's not even the end all be all. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure that the situation be damned, like you're probably still going to create regardless. Right. So, right. So at the end of the day, it doesn't much matter, but at least you did have those, those couple of, especially, especially female figures in your life that, that were able to drive that for you. So it's amazing. Now, do you feel, do you feel like, do you feel like you would have created more or generated more income or gotten to any particular like other threshold of artistry if if maybe you're you had received more of that like at home support for for artistic pursuits? I mean, it's one of those things where I think when when I was younger, you know, like that there was there was certainly resentment. Like I would look at other people and be like, God, if I had had that kind of support, like who knows what I could have accomplished. But, but then there's like a transition that happens in life where you're just like, well, but you didn't, 
right? So like you can, you can live in that regret and that anger about it, or you can just be like, yeah, you're just going to continue to produce. And I think that like, for me, I went through that cycle. And, and so it's a little bittersweet to think about, you know, like, well, if I had gone to like theater camp or something Mm -hmm. like that, or like, you know, if, if, like I was like living in a town of like 10,000 people in Michigan, right. Growing up and like would be like, I'm going to spend my $13 on a subscription to movie line magazine. Right. And like would like read, which was like the sort of like indie, like up and coming film magazine, right. Like in the like early eighties, and I I knew about what was going on in Hollywood and like who all the players were and shit. Like like I thought like I was gonna go and like be a screenwriter or an actor or something like that. Like that was sort of like what I imagined, right? And that was sort of like my parents would just be like, "What the? I don't understand how this happened." Like we are like good. Like I work at Ford Motor Company. I don't understand how this is <laughs> happening to my child, right? Like. So it 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 was uh, like a weird thing, but then, you know, like you go, like life happens and stuff goes on, and 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 it actually turned out that like, uh, so I moved to LA in uh, nineteen the end of ninety three nineteen ninety three. I'm so old. <laughs> um, <laughs> but like, I moved to LA with like all these dreams. Like, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna make it happen. Like, boom. And, um, and it, like, it took about six months for me to go, fuck this place, man. This place is messed up. Um, uh, but in, in the meantime, I lived, I ended up living there for 15 years. And, um, (laughs) but one of the first, like, uh, true, like industry jobs that I got, like industry related jobs was that I, I started freelancing for movie line magazine. Nice. So it was like this magazine that I had it's a subscription <laughs> to, right? Like when I was a kid growing up, right? Yeah. And I freelanced and then I fucking realized how much I hated freelancing because it took something that I love writing and it turned it into this, um, it turned it into work. It's kind of a shitty grind. Yeah. yeah. Like where I would like, they're like the editors, like we, we want you to freelance for us cause we, we read some of your stuff and we really love your voice and then, like, I, I write, like, my first article, and she's like, you need to get your voice right out of this. Like, because we got to put it in this magazine that has to be our voice, right? And I was just so enraptured by being able to do it that I did it, like, I think I did, like, six articles for them. But at the end, it was just like, I don't, this isn't even who I am, right? Like, and I don't want to make money this way. So it's a weird thing, because as much as I wish that I'd had certain support and like, maybe I could have worked in that world. Like there's also certain, uh, money for art comes sometimes with boundaries and restrictions that I think changes what your art is. And so for me, my experience has been that oftentimes those are things that make me love the art less. Okay. So, it's maybe like a blessing in disguise that I didn't have that support, that I didn't go into like an art field sure. where I might have resented what I was doing. Um, but that I sort of stumbled through a succession of <laughs> vaguely 
weird jobs that I could apply art to, to wind up working in um, museums where I get to use my creativity quite often on, on like my, on my terms. Yeah. So, okay. Well, let's, let's kind of dig into, dig into that a little bit. Dig into that a little bit without being super specific. Right. Um, as it, okay. As it stands right now, um, a, a large part of what you do to, to, to bring in the cheddar, keep the lights on, so to speak, um, involves, uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Cell phone <laughs> snafu. Sorry. It's all good. It happens. Certainly not the first time, and I'm sure it won't be the last. But, Turn it off. <laughs> but uh, you act in a, in, a, in a historical setting. Sometimes. Sometimes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I, I have seen you pretty <laughs> well, for what seemed like it could have gone on infinitely. Um, improvise and interact uh, full, you know, full blown dialogue that seemed uh, period appropriate, like complete with data and facts. And like my, my mind is blown by what some of the, some of the, the better actors uh, that, that you have, have worked with My mind is blown by what they're capable of and the level of, what seems like research that must be involved in that. So what, what is, what is putting that together look like? Like if you're starting from day one, if you're, if you're going back to the origin of, of that like branch of your artistic career path, how, how the hell do you even do that? I mean, it's, it's not like you're memorizing a script, like memorizing lines is not the most difficult thing in the world. Right. But right. I mean, you know, it's not easy necessarily, but if you can just like, you know, repetition is everything there. But I mean, how the, how the hell do you, do you develop the ability to completely freeform improv and not just, not just like interact with, with someone who's, you know, like asking you questions or whatever, but, but even like cut them off at the knees with like your, <laughs> your, your, your witty clapbacks, like what? Please, please, please dig in a bit to, to the process of even like making that a possibility. So I think, so like for me personally, the, the place where I am now, right. The, mm-hmm. the, the stuff that I do now is all a culmination sure. of, you know, my entire life. So like, honestly, it goes back to, so like, I've always been uh, a fat kid. Right. I can relate. And so like from a really young age, uh, I was aware like that is going to be something that, that people look at you before they know you, before they talk to you, before they experience you, that is going to be something that people form an opinion about who you are. Sure. So like I have like, like a cognizant recall, like full on, like being, like four or five years old and being like, you need to figure out how you're going to bypass this. Right. So I made a decision really early on, like you need to be funny or smart or like super strong. Like these are all, all things that are going to 
outweigh, no pun intended, uh, this impression that people have. Like, this will rise above, like, oh, you're the fat kid. Like, being the smart kid, being the funny kid, being the, like, the underdog fighter, like, all of those things will, will circumvent, like, the, the classification as the fat kid. Sure. Right? So, from a really young age, that was my motivation. And so, that required me to, like, be on point, right? Like, if you're gonna, if you're gonna come in and, like, make a joke about me, I need to be funnier than you with my reply or my response, or I need to be stronger or smarter. I need to outsmart you. I need to be able to read you and figure out how to break you down so sure. that you don't get the best of me, right? So there's good in that and there's bad in that. But it was a preparation, okay? right? So I think that's part of it. Um, so I also was that weird kid who when there were like groups of people together, I, and all the like kids would be like, let's go play. And I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to hang out with the adults if you don't mind. And I would just sort of like find a corner and just like, you know, like they've all got like their cocktails and I have like a Pepsi and I'm just like, no, go ahead. You, you talk. And I would listen. And like every once in a while, like I remember like chiming in on these like super like political religious discussions. And they would just be like, what the, like, you're, you're like seven. You don't need to be talking about, you know, Catholicism in that way. And I was just like, no, 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 I'm interested. You, you tell me what you think. So there was always like a draw for me sure. to like be informed and like understand the room. Right. So again, another layer on top of that. And, um, and then I also just, as much as I'm uh, like sort of an introvert, on those moments where I can like, I can shine on something that I have, uh, that I've polished. Like it's my piece of brass, right? Like I, I melded it. I polished it. It's mine. I own it. Nobody else has it. Like I will put it out there and be proud of it. Right. And so that, that knowing, knowing where that piece of brass can be shown, where it can flash and shine, that was sort of like my understanding of things. And so all of those things sort of like mashed together. And so there were certain places where I could really push that to the edge. And I think like the first time that I really remember like making that happen in a big way was like, uh, you know, like in, in college, I, I worked like some factory jobs, like in between semesters and stuff to like make quick money. Right. And <clears throat> I worked at this one factory. It was like a, it was a Libio and Ford in, um, in Adrian, Michigan. And, uh, we made windows for Jeep AMC and Ford automobiles. And, I hated that job <laughs> and hated it. It was terrible. Uh, I worked in a department with like one other guy and like the first day that I went to work, they were like, yeah, he doesn't really think a woman can do this job. So he's going to be a real asshole about it. Here you go. And I was like, like in my mind, I was like, fuck you. But then I was also like, I'm going to show this guy. Right. So I'm going to be like a super strong, like I'm going to come in and be like, women can do anything that they want. Yeah. And I did, which I'm very proud of, but like, I also would like, uh, I, I would pick up extra hours and like work the line. So like on the weekends you would stand like at a conveyor belt, 
while these windows would go by and you'd just be basically like, yeah, that one's fine. That one's fine. That one's fine. And then you like put them on a pallet. Right. And, uh, there was like another spot that like down the line where like these windows would pass again. And so I, I started taking like a, a grease pencil and I would write like one line of like a limerick. Right. <laughs> and so like this, this random window would go down with like this line and then like two or three windows would pass and I'd write like the next line and then it would go down. And so like I did this like one Saturday because uh, I was super bored. And at the end of the day, all the guys <laughs> were like, oh, my God, are you going to work next weekend? Like, <laughs> you have to work next weekend. That was like the best thing ever. And it was like that, like, OK, all right, like here, here's how I can use this, right? This improvisational ability to like, I'm going to write some vaguely filthy limericks for like factory guys. Like, right. Sweet. But like also using <laughs> like like the doldrums themselves, uh-huh. right? Like yeah. So I'm sorry not to cut you off. Oh no no. I mean like I've worked a bunch of shitty jobs and that is what gets you through. Like yeah. like like checking out into your head to like get through. And and also like working those jobs and like no offense to anybody because like those jobs need to get done. Sure. But oh my god thankless and usually less than gratifying on a, on a spiritual level. Yeah, exactly. Like they grind you down those kinds of jobs. And if you don't have some kind of outlet, like mentally to just to check out or to like refresh with afterwards, you know, um, it's, it's a tough row, but then something as simple as like, and you know, kind (laughs) of arguably, in some contexts, kind of like a cheap gag, right? right. Oh, like a fanciful 100%. dick joke at the end of the day, most yeah. of the time. Most limericks I've experienced, at least. Right. But, like, but using just like the slightest touch of unexpected levity that like obviously had a resounding impact with, with the rest of the people you were working with, right? right. Like, because, yeah, something, something that breaks through the tedium of like, that sort of a like a, a specific flavor of shitty day which like i've definitely worked in warehouses and factories like i understand how like how shitty that can be yeah and but but yeah like y- you cut through that with a samurai sword and and blindside them and then it's like well okay the rest of the week that kind of sucked real hard doesn't really suck as bad or at least i'm not thinking of that now what i'm thinking about is Hopefully this happens again next right. time around, you know? Yeah. And, I mean, that's great. That's, that's a super special thing to be able to offer someone who essentially wasn't even asking for it. But I mean, I don't know that you, you see the need and you act on it. And I think that that's, that's, that's part of what makes you special, Kim. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, that's like that, but, but that is always like, for me, that's like the payment, right? Sure. Like, a, a, like my, my parents were always like, well, you, you know, you can't do art for like a job because art doesn't pay right and for me it's not about the monetary payment it is about the emotional payment right that connection and experience that you have with another person another human being who experiences the art or the effort that you've put in and the the reciprocation of like thank you or like clapping or you know or just saying like that spoke to me or that made my day better or that pissed me off or like I didn't get that where do you get off like you know (laughs) like whatever um that's like your payment and that's to me that's 
that's super valuable. Yeah. It's hard to, hard to quantify that with like a, like a dollar amount, but. Right. Lots of people do though. Yeah. I mean, like that is, that's definitely, we, we've created that structure in our society to, um, do, I, I, like, so like just recently I've had, I had an opportunity to do something that I don't normally do. Right. Uh, creatively to, to, to do some acting and some other stuff, some voiceover work that I don't normally get to do. And so, uh, the situation is kind of weird. Like I knew the people and, and, uh, like, you know, there's like a pandemic and like everybody's down and out, you know, like blah, blah, blah. And so, uh, they like asked me to do this and I said, yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I'll do this. And they were like, yeah, we'll, we'll compensate you and everything like that. And you know, blah, blah, blah. And then we continued to have conversations and then it got to the point where like, yeah, we're definitely going to do this. And like, here's some more details. And I said, you know, like we're like, I'm, I'm like texting and I'm just like, Hey, so before we go any further, like, uh, you know, this conversation that nobody likes to have, but like you mentioned compensation and, and since we're at that point right now, like, can we talk, can we have that conversation? And they were like, yeah, absolutely. And then like the text stopped and I'm like, in my head, I'm just like, nope, you're sending the next tag. Like you're, I'm not like it, it, you are asking me, you're telling me you're going to compensate me. You make that offer. I'm not going to lowball myself because right. I think artists are forced into that sure. constantly. And so like I kind of waited and then like the, it was like, it was like 24 hours later and I get this text like, here's the amount that, that I was thinking. And I was like fuck off like are you kidding like i know i know you i know that this is like i everybody's in the same situation but like you're talking about uh a skill set here that mm. you're coming to me for specifically yeah. and then you're gonna lowball me into like doing this for you and so i was like i like had to text a friend and like call a friend and i was like what do i do like do i say no do i do i counter you know uh offer them something and you know, they're just like, well, you know, here's like the kind of like the going rate for this kind of work. And I was like, yeah, man, you know, like, and so I like threw back like what I thought was a completely reasonable amount. And they were like, "Mm, let me get back to you. And then it was like another like two days and they, and they paid me that amount that I countered right eventually. But the fact of the matter was, is that like, if they, if I would have just said yes, they would have paid me that amount, which was like, like almost 50% less. Right. So I think that's the, that's what really sucks about art is that we've, we've created a system in which artists are oftentimes, um, not fairly compensated for their effort. And sometimes certain artists and art is overly, Mm -hmm. uh, compensated for. Um, and then you create a system where artists are, embarrassed or guilty to ask for what their time and effort is worth, which really sucks because, you know, like art, creating art, uh, or, or performance is not, it's not the same as like working in a factory, like not to say that people who work in factories aren't, aren't good people or work hard or anything like that. Cause all those things are true. Um, but the cost personally emotionally for an artist is different than somebody who you know punches in from seven to three thirty 
you know, to work on a line uh, five days a week. And so it's a weird, it's, uh, I feel yeah. like I've strayed a thousand <laughs> miles from what you originally said. I don't even know. I just like no, went off on okay. a okay. I don't remember like, either. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but it's such a weird thing, yeah. you know, to like, um, like, oh, I don't know. I hate what we do to artists in our society, right? Sure. We value some for some reasons and then vilify others for other reasons. And, and rarely do we actually compensate people for, for the work that they do. Yeah. It's, and I mean, with, with all of, of, of what we're talking about right now, right? There, there, there are lots of like opposing and, and equally valid conversations you can have right and like in terms of like the factory worker versus the artist right there's there's definitely a bit of a trade-off at what you're kind of putting on the line or what's at stake because as an artist there's a lot more of yourself that is attached to your work there's a lot more emotional investment there is in some cases like the the risk of of winding up in a in a place of like mental unwellness because of the intense connection that you have to your art meanwhile you know the factory worker is not nearly so invested in what's happening at the end of the day and you know definitely for most at least i think uh fairly unfulfilling but also you know the physical risk of just repetitive motion injuries and stuff. Not that, not that artists are excluded from that sort of thing, right? Like, you know, enough, enough paint strokes is bound to make something get all wonky on you. Right. But, right. um, but, uh, th- there was another point somewhere around there. Um, but you know, we can just forget about that and move, <laughs> <laughs> move right along. Maybe, maybe I'll get back to it. I've but. buried enough ideas uh, in the, oh, just like the jabber jaw. No, I was something I was going to say. I mean, just in, in terms of compensation, right. As an, as an artist, as a creator and, and whether it's, whether it is, it is freelancing because that is while it, it's a grind, right. I've, spent plenty of time, uh, in the last few years, um, just kind of freelance writing on the side. And it's not something I'm actively doing right now just because I don't have anything close to the bandwidth because it does require a lot of that. Um, but the ability to pick and choose, um, you know, the, the jobs that you're taking on is kind of nice. You know, there is, there is that added benefit, but there is a weird, there's a weird spectrum in terms of compensation, that at least I, I kind of picked up on. And there is that obscene end of the spectrum where people with arguable artistic merit are making millions and millions of dollars because they're selling lots of advertisements or merchandise or, you know, whatever the case may be. So, I mean, then that's understandable, but it's not, we won't think about that end of the spectrum because, (laughs) because we want to focus on what's, I don't want to use the term good. I feel like that's rude as shit, right? Yeah, it's hard. But like m- most of that like hyper commercialized like 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 industry driven art, art that exists for the sake of making money kind of sucks in a lot of cases. 
you're probably hearing my walk-in refrigerator door. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm hearing a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Ghosts. I don't know how much of it's making onto the microphone, but yeah, if we're lucky, Thanks. fingers crossed. Um, but, uh, Do you, are there, is it, no, is this place haunted? Probably not, but, but maybe <laughs> it's haunted by us right now. That's right. Mm. We're here. But I, I did notice just through my own journey with, with freelancing, there are a lot of people that expect a lot for absolutely nothing. Yeah. Like I need a thousand words on this topic and I'm willing to pay you $15. Right. That like if, if you can find someone who's willing to do that for $15 and the product that they give you at the end of it is acceptable to you, then you, you enjoy, you know, that that's great. Like good luck, not, selling any of the thing, you know, right. or attracting any of the people. Cause like, I just, and maybe, you know, maybe they get something that they absolutely don't deserve. And it is an exceptional piece of work. And someone spent time earning that $15 because they lacked that confidence to know what their value is. And luckily with something like freelance writing, there is at least now kind of an established range of what's acceptable based on your skill level. But the average, at least as of, you know, like two years ago, the average hourly rate for a professional level freelance writer is $140 an hour. Yeah. And it still continues to go up from yeah. there. Um, meanwhile, I've never been paid that much for writing. Right. Like, I, like, did you ever ask for that much, though? No. That's see, that's that's right? the thing. And, I, and yeah. hopefully and, you know, hopefully that's that's you know, one of the key takeaways from, from this episode here tonight is, is as an artist, because we are talking to so many different types of creators and, and I personally am of, of, am of the mindset that, um, art is a hell of a lot more than, you know, musical notes played or ink on a page. I mean, I, I, I definitely think that, you know, the icing on the cake is just as much and just as valid art as really anything else. Um, so, but, but understanding that worth is, is critical. If you are going to try and have a career that is based on your art or your creation, uh, don't, don't be afraid to a, first of all, do the, do the fucking research. It's, it's the information is available. Like learn what someone who does the thing that you do is charging at a, like a super high level and like an entry level and like somewhere in between, because maybe you feel like your skills are not entry level skills. Maybe you've been doing it passively just as like a, a creative outlet for a couple of years. You know, maybe it's just journaling or like a couple of random dirty limericks or, I mean, you know, right, whatever. Right. But if you've got a little bit of time in the saddle, even if you never charged anyone a dime for it before, you know, chances are your skills are slightly above the very, very beginning stage. And, you know, 40 bucks an hour ain't nothing to laugh at, you know? And that's on the lower end of that scale, you right. know? So I guess the, the moral of the story is like, you're, you're going to, to lose more opportunities, not just, to like to make more money on a single job, but you you won't have as many jobs if that's like the terminology we're going to use in this context. You won't even have as many jobs because when you undervalue yourself, you can't ever expect anyone else to have more value for what you're offering than what you do. So maybe if you're trying to do some some freelance work, photography, writing, whatever the case may be, 
maybe consider bidding that next gig like 10%, 15%, 25% higher than what yeah. you would have on the last one because you may find out that you're actually worth it. And at the end of the day, if you don't land the gig, maybe it wasn't the right gig anyway. Yeah. But anyway, that's that's a long deviation from from talking about what what it is that you do on yeah. a, on a on a larger scale. So. No, but it, it you know, it it kind of like rounds back and it touches base on that because I think because I I grew up with the sense that uh you know, like art is, you know, like an extracurricular, like there's not mm-hmm. value in it. Sure. You can't it's it's not it's a hobby. It's a hobby, right? So I think that I never sought out like purely artistic jobs and the couple of times that I did like I really found myself like not enjoying the way that like I my art was restricted or my input was restricted and so um I think that what I do now uh allows me to um flex my creativity at like I for the most part set my own boundaries and um, I'm compensated with a, a salary, you know, I'm a salaried employer, uh, employee and, and within that I get to have opportunities to use my creativity. And, um, and there are certainly times that I'm just like, shit, man, if I was doing this like on my own, that like, this is laughable, I'd be making so much more money. But also like, I know myself well enough to know that I'm not a person who has gone out and like, you know, punched enough dicks to like be in that position <laughs> to like, I'm going to get this much money for this job and you can't stop, you know, like, suck it. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's not who I am. Like, I've never had that level of confidence, right? Um, I've pretended like I've sure. had that level of confidence, but I can't sustain it for long periods, right? It's reasonable, yeah. So I think when I, I sort of, I think my, my, foray my first foray into like doing this kind of work like performance work right was um when I sort of fell into teaching which I did for eight years um when I lived in Los Angeles and I worked with uh emotionally disturbed and at-risk teens um in a non-public school setting so these were kids who were not allowed to be in public schools anymore because of behavioral issues um so that was like, uh, like these are kids who have either like severe emotional disturbances or, um, they don't have, they're, they're functioning at a level that is not, you know, their, their age level or whatever. So these are kids who have unique skills, like they will size you up. Like, like they may not have the verbal skills, or the educational skills to like meet you at your level, mm-hmm. but they can read you and they're like, I, you know, it's like the Terminator scan, like, and like detect all your weaknesses, like, and that is how they operate with you. Right. Sure. So like if you threaten them in some way, they're going to attack all your weaknesses. And so they had their own sort of like performance interaction. And I, in, in standing in front of a classroom with these kids, um, I learned pretty early on, like, I pretty much need to, like, be completely comfortable making an asshole out of myself at any time. Because, like, that's the only way that I can bring myself to a place where, like, look, I'm vulnerable too. Like, yeah, you can, you can, I know you know 
who I am. Sure. So this is who I am, right? I'm a big dork. Like I'm, I'm, I'm stupid. I love, there's certain things that I love and they're real nerdy things and that's okay. And like, I'm fallible and I like, am emotional and all of these things. And so, um, like embracing that, like working with this, these kids. And then, uh, uh, after eight years of doing that, I came to Indiana and the first job I got was at the children's museum here. Like I just like, like I needed work. And it was like November and they were doing like their holiday hiring. So I, I hired on as just like a part-timer who ended mm-hmm. up like sticking around. And uh, like the turning point was they opened um, the Take Me There uh, Egypt space, okay. the gallery. And that was the first time that they had ever really done that kind of like interpretation at the museum. And I was tasked with like playing this Egyptian woman, right. Who was like in hijab and like, like in a caftan. And I like would wander around in the gallery and interact with people. Like I was from Egypt. Right. Which Mo- now wait, like modern Egypt or, or ancient? yeah, like okay. no modern Egypt. Okay. And which, so now like in 2020, you go like culturally insensitive, possibly <laughs> like, Hey, you're, you're like Irish American, right? So <laughs> could you pretend to be Egyptian? for this yeah absolutely no not a problem but like it happened that this was like during um like uh the iranian spring and like all the uprisings in egypt and everything and so like every day on like npr there would be like reports from bbc radio with all these people from egypt and so i'm kind of a parrot sure so i would listen to these things and so i'd like developed this egyptian accent right and so like i would go in like full-blown like i learned a little bit of arabic you know like just enough to like like let me like mix up my cadence and like like yeah like full-on and there were more than more than like five or six instances where i was like in the gallery like interacting with people and and they were like clearly Egyptian or at least spoke Arabic and they would start speaking to me in Arabic. And like, I knew enough to be like, Oh, you know, like I, I speak English now. <laughs> like where I, and, and then I would like, there were times when I would have to like pull people to the side and be like, I'm so sorry. You're like, blowing my cover, like, man. <laughs> I, no, but I would be like, so apologetic. Like, I'm really sorry. Like this yeah. is, I'm just playing a character. Like I'm not, I'm not, you know? And they're like, no, really, where are you from? And I would be like, like, from Michigan? And they would be like, <laughs> no, but you're from, like, like your parents are, like, no, I, I am a liar. Like, I'm a big liar. <laughs> but so it got me, like, really interested in being able to do that, to do yeah. that kind of first-person interpretation. Um, and so I did it uh, at a couple other places and landed into it. But, uh, like, it got bound up into like history, but, um, but I'm a big, I, I like at heart, I'm a dork, right? I love certain things. There are certain things I love and I hated history all through like school yeah, because oh, yeah. of how it was taught, you know, like it was names and dates. Like, I don't, I don't care. And half of it was like half true anyway. <laughs> right. Exactly. Like, and plus like there's no women apparently like whatever, like, okay. Um, but so then like when I started to research history on my own to learn things, to be able to, you know, like represent and understand, you know, the past, um, that's when I developed my real love for it. And, and so being able to like, to talk with folks with a, 
with an amount of knowledge, like how yeah. does that all happen? It happens because you, you love the subject, you know, and you're, you would be learning about it whether you had a job that paid you to learn about it or not, right? But it helps that you have a job that pays you to learn about it. So, and back to, back to the you see, previous I, I question. Worked oh, yeah, really no, hard to like get done. us back there. Yeah, it was like the done. longest block ever. No, it was, it was great. And that's, we went around. That's, that's almost, I feel like <laughs> that is an ideal moment here on Forging <laughs> Flame. When, when we can take a big, like circuitous, like just a long walk around the pond, right? Right. And then just wind up right back at yeah. what we were intended yeah. to get to. But would you say that, that that was one of those big revelatory moments for you? Like, did did a light go off when you realized that that you could use some of your nerdier characteristics, right? Just the ability to just dig deep into um, singular subjects, and while meanwhile finding that you can that you can act and play pretend and improvise and yeah. do all these beautiful things while like wormholing on on the history and oh so, yeah 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 like no doubt like if if you if you had ever told you know like like 12 year old me like hey how about this like how would you like to work in a job where you can dress up in weird costumes <laughs> and pretend like you're someone else uh you can be funny there's not a script you have to memorize you can make stuff up outside of a wealth of knowledge and information to bring to the situation and also you can like show some expertise. Uh, that's a job. And I would have been like, yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the job I want. But you know, there, it wasn't like, like that wasn't a, an option. Yeah. Right. So I sort of like threw my, you know, like I did improv, you know, for a couple of years and mm -hmm. like, I saw that I was, you know, good at it, but I wasn't like, like I, I think I've tried out for like comedy sports like three different times and been rejected every time, <laughs> and I'm just like, fuck all of you. Like I'm they don't funny. deserve you. Like I, no, but like it's just I I realized I've had to like uh, like talk with myself like that is not that's not what I do well though. Right. I don't play those games within those confines well. Sure. What I do well is like like. Hey, for the next 10 minutes, can you pretend like your name is Beulah and that you know a lot about, you know, I don't know, like dish soap? Like, absolutely. <laughs> like, absolutely. What do you need to know about dish soap? Because I know everything. I know the history. Like, like that is, that's, that's how I entertain myself. <laughs> like, like, I have friends who, like, will sit and, like, it's just like a, a, like a little tangent happens and you just, like, go off and for, like, 10 minutes you're just, like... You're playing a game and you both know that you're playing a game, but you so love the game that you just keep playing and it sure. goes on and on. And like, holy crap, I, I, for a, a lot of the past, you know, decade, I've been paid to do just that, like, honestly. And so not, I mean, like not well paid, but <laughs> like, <laughs> life sustainable, right? right? Exactly. And so that's pretty sweet. Um, yeah, that's, that's not a bad place for a creative person to find oneself, yeah. especially someone with, you know, with a, with an interest in, in acting and stage and screen, you know, that's, it's almost ideal, you know, other, other than like those loftier, more idyllic notions of like, you know, be, being, being the next big Hollywood director, you know, right. like, right. Cool. But that's like, 
the 1% of the 1% of just people who are interested in filmmaking, right? You know? Yeah. There's not a lot of seats available at that table. I think that, like, I I think that as you get older, as you mature, as you change, evolve, whatever, as an artist, that you come to places uh, of understanding of yourself and, like, your own artistic mission. And I think for me that that probably about five years ago I sort of like landed in that place of, of like what is important to me? Like it used to be like, I want to be famous or like, I want to have this, like I want to have a a novel that is a bestseller or I want to be able to do this or I want a Tony or, you know, like whatever, like all these like really grand dreams that you have. And then like it evolves and like you, you have life crushing moments and disappointments and all that stuff. And you, you, you know, you change your ideas about it. But really for me, I, I would say it's probably, probably closer to a decade than just five years. But, um, like I want to, when I'm doing something artistically, um, what I want is I want to affect someone, right? So if it's 20 people, that's fantastic. Like that's 20 people. Love it. If it's one person that that is, I have accomplished what I meant to do. Right. So like I, I used to do indie fringe regularly and, uh, I, I, I like one year had like a, what would be like an indie fringe success. Right. Like, like I did this show the first night, like you get like six nights, right. I did the show the first night. Um, they were like, 10 people there and then word of mouth spread. It just happened to have like, I I got the right title, right. And the right group of people came to see it that first night. They spread it around word of mouth. The second night I had like triple that. And then the last four nights I sold out. Nice. Right. And that was like, Holy shit. Like, I don't know how that happened. Right. It was a one woman show that I wrote like boom. And it was super crazy. Right. Like that felt awesome. Right. But the year before I did a piece, it was my first year doing Indie Fringe. And I wrote like a piece that was like, I didn't get Fringe. Like I knew theater, but I didn't get Fringe. Right. So I had like these huge set pieces and like a cast of six. And it was like a super serious, (laughs) it was like a play about, it was a play about like uh, coal mining strikes in 1930s Kentucky with like Appalachian mountain, uh, like singing in it, like original music, like crazy, like with like an aspect of like racism and like, just like, like too much for fringe. A little ambitious. It it was super ambitious, overly (laughs) ambitious, full of heart, full of intention. Um, but like, like didn't put, put, didn't put butts in seats. But I had people come up to me afterwards and say, that was incredibly moving. That was important. Or like, I, that was beautiful. Thank you. You know, like, and so for me, both of those things were extremely um, successful endeavors, right? Because I affected people. One resulted in like notoriety and like some money in my pocket and one didn't but they were both equally successful because it affected people. And that's what, that's what art is supposed to do, you sure. know? So, um, 
yeah, man, like whatever I'm doing, like I just want, even if it's something stupid, like I'm like a draw some weird cartoon to like put on my coworker's desk. Like if they laugh, I'm like, I won. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's all about like, like I made that, like I made you have a better moment than you intended to have. And like, that's what's important. You ever follow that up with just like a big, like, ah, fuck you. <laughs> have I ever that's, that's danced the sweetest. on a grave? Yes, of course. Like who hasn't? There's not a single artist who hasn't like reveled in having like accomplished where they didn't think they could accomplish. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's it's definitely like a like a a special sort of thing to get to get validation of any sort, right? As an yeah. artist, like knowing that your thing has value, whether or not it's financial, whether it's you know more more intrinsic, like and more personal, you know, to the humans who are experiencing it. Like I would say, in many cases, that's probably a lot more validating. Although, like, food in your belly and the bills paid is a super nice feeling, right? Absolutely. I mean, like, I don't, I don't know how successful uh, I would be in those endeavors if I were just doing, like, straight art. Because I sure. just don't think I have the, the backbone for it, right? Like, I'm too easily convinced by other people's mm. comments, sure. right? Like, somebody doesn't like something. Or even somebody doesn't love something. And I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, this is, this is a mess. This is a failure. Like I, oh, what did I, why was I thinking that I could do, oh my God, I'm an idiot. Oh Jesus. Like, you know, and like I spiral down that drain sure. pretty quickly and it takes a long, uh, it takes a lot of self-talk to like, to like not go there. Um, but yeah, I mean like, I don't, is it, is it sick and twisted to be like, like one of my favorite validations is like oh my god you made me cry like i cried <laughs> i'm just like yes yes you know, i guess it depends yes. on how it like makes you feel deep deep inside to hear that you know uh, it makes me feel really good <laughs> makes me feel really strong and powerful yeah. i am god no. <laughs> yes like i made water come out of your face like that is Yes. They called me the art. rainmaker. Yeah. No, no I, I, like I don't that. think yeah. that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, again, as, as long as it's not feeding something dark and demented yeah. within you, I think that it's making people feel is, is kind of an important thing. Uh, the, and I mean, you know, I think that you, what you expressed as, as kind of your own, um, like how, how wrapped up it sounds like you can get into like that, like feelings of self-worth as it relates to that external validation. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of, that's kind of like the chronic problem of most artists um, is like such an attachment to what you're doing that you also attach feelings of like self-worth or self-value to that. So if like everyone universally says that thing that you made sucks, like, most artists are probably going to feel at least on some level, like I suck, you know, yeah. even though they're talking about the thing and not the person behind it necessarily. Right. And I mean, you know, their opinion is invalid anyway, because it wasn't made for them, obviously. So, right. But unfortunately we've created a society where, uh, you know, like there is like, there are numerous platforms for us to 
put out, mm-hmm. receive validation, and then validate ourselves. Sure. Like that, as unhealthy as that process is, <laughs> like we we participate in it yeah. on a regular basis, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's just become very normal and regular. And that's, I mean, there are good things about that. Um, but there are also really evil, terrible things about that. 100%. Now, Ryan, I, I know you've got something to say on, on this topic. Well, it's, it's also interesting to think about like your upbringing and how that influences the, because I have the kind of the same thing with, with my artwork. I really feel like it's successful when it has some sort of impact and that impact may not be what I anticipated, but, um, I grew up with a similar kind of circumstance. You know, my dad kind of viewed it more as a, as a hobby and he thought the idea of wanting to affecting uh, to affect people to be a vocate like that's just silly that that's just you're you're not making sense you're not even making words anymore um and it's it's been hard to not have resentful feelings that you know you kind of you kind of mentioned feeling resentment at a certain point of your development but i think one thing it surely affected is my confidence so it's it's tough for me to really draw that line of between like wanting to affect somebody and trying not to dip too far into that validation that icky kind of like okay i'm okay yeah (laughs) ryan and i sometimes butt heads over that that topic and i think i think you voicing that kind of like helps inform like my understanding of you in that regard too because like i'm i'm very focused like when it comes to forging flame um we both have a have a strong desire to keep the heart of everything that we're doing super pure at the end of the day, if nobody wants to listen to what we're, what we're making, that's fine because we're not even really the ones making it. We're just kind of enabling conversations like these to happen and sharing right. them outward with the world. And meanwhile, like I've got like kind of a, a marketing brain that's always like churning in the background. And I'm like, well, how can we get this to, to reach like the most amount of people and have like the bro- most broad sweeping impact and so like I'm I'm you know I'm like focusing focusing on things like how we can how we can grow effectively and inevitably there's like if I bring up something like that Ryan's like whoa man you know like hold on you know but but Instagram I mean, the, competitions yeah. let's have sweepstakes yeah. Yeah. like no <laughs> yeah yeah but I, I, the, but that right? like phrasing it like that though like it makes absolute sense you know especially when when you do like tie some of some of your self-worth to to that and you know and having having resistance that may or may or may not be you know beneficial to your development along the way which maybe sometimes just through like gestation of of things right like maybe 15 20 years down the road what happened to you that sucks actually does wind up being beneficial there's like a long road to get to that point right so i'm i'm 100 percent a believer of like like adversity is, uh, I don't know. It, it is, it is a forging flame. Like, (laughs) no, like it it totally is like, and it does, it does transform you. It can damage you. Um, but it can ultimately like make you stronger, you know, like, uh, like I'm not, I'm not a blacksmith. I'm not a, you know, uh, a knife maker or anything like that, but like, 
like when you're working with like iron and steel and stuff like that, you know, like you, you heat it up, you work it and then you cool it down and then you heat it up and work it and cool it down. And those cooling down processes are really important, right? Because if you don't do that regularly, if you don't bring it back to like a cool temperature before you reheat it again, you lose some of that strength. Right. And so I do think that like, like adversity in life is, is, you know, when, when it, is allowed and graceful enough to be cyclical in your life, right? Like where you have these bad times and then you have times that aren't bad or as mm-hmm. bad um, to refortify and then you hit bad times again. That each one of those episodes gives you an opportunity to, like, th- there is, like, I'm not going to lie, like there have been points in my life where I'm just like, am I fucking cursed? Like, what did I do? Like what in a past life did I do to deserve what my life is right now? Like how I don't understand why everything is a trial, why everything is hard, like why I can't have anything good. Like I don't get it. I've definitely had those times in my life, but then I've also like come to a place of like, I just think like, to be honest, like better mental health where I can say like, yep, like I've had some struggles and I've had some really hard times and in those hard times, it seems impossible to, to, to see an end to them or to see a way out. And then you get to the other side of it and you're like, yeah, that, that was hard, but you know what? Like I made it through. And like, now I feel stronger for the next time because I have the opportunity to say I was there before. Like I've been here before. I know it sucks that I'm here again, but I also do know that there's an end to this. There's a, there's a possibility to be on the other side of it. And so I, I do think that there's something important for all artists to like like I think if you have like a super great like life that you never have to struggle and you never have adversity like what you might produce creatively is pretty banal like it's sure. not <laughs> like why would anyone care right like <laughs> how how does that speak to people on a certain level I think like you speak to people as an artist because you you have you know plumbed those depths you've been there like you can connect in a way that that other people maybe who haven't had those experiences can't connect. It's a lot of art's about the negative space, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's true. Wow. Man, okay. So I did I did want to ask one one question that I wrote that I wrote down <laughs> to dig to dig back to um the some of the the research that goes into um, uh, portrayals of of someone alive at a certain period of time. Yeah. Are there any old timey profanities you've come across, and if so, what's your favorite? So I think that's a fantastic question, and I don't think I've ever come across necessarily oldie timey profanities um, that I can recall, like off the top. Like that's not to say that you couldn't go down a, a really easy to find Google rabbit hole. Like I, and that is, Oh my God, no, that's like a Saturday for me. Like (laughs) what the fuck? Like I'm what? And like three hours goes by and you're just like, I don't even care. Cause like I found three things that super got me excited. Um, no, I can't think of, I can't think of anything offhand. Man, that bums me out. I wish if, I had something that I could pull up. If you were going to insult me based on my my physical appearance uh-huh. as someone oh. from the, the early to mid-1800s. Uh, I, don't, 
like to insult people <laughs> on Well, then compliment. Oh. No. Uh, Backhanded okay. compliment. Okay. Even better. Yes. Uh, I mean, if I were going to compliment you, I might say that um, uh, you seem like an upstanding uh, young man based on uh, your physical appearance because uh, certainly you are as stout as a new oak barrel sir wow (laughs) (laughs) never felt better about being a fat kid (laughs) right i mean and i can hold so much whiskey (laughs) right exactly yay um uh no i think that like like oldie timey people were super eloquent oh yeah which is fantastic and i love um oh god See, like, you're going to make me go into, like, super nerd territory. Um, <laughs> Don't be afraid. But, but I love uh, the evolutionary linguistics of, like, um, uh, especially people who are from, say, like, the Appalachian regions who really, if you go back, uh, even today in, in the 21st century, but if you go back into the 19th and 18th centuries, the amount of... Um, sort of like a Queen's English vernacular that they retained. And because of the physical geographical isolation of those areas as mm-hmm. they settled, right, um, a lot of that stayed within their vernacular, right? So that exists in their language today. And it people from that region speak differently than we do, right? Um, so people who spread around and, like, intermixed with people who are coming from all different parts of mm-hmm. Europe – in Appalachia, those those people were pretty isolated, and so that language stayed pretty pure and pretty close to its root. And I love stuff like that. And going back and like just sort of, um, I've played a woman who was from uh, sort of like nineteen early nineteenth century Kentucky before, and it may sound super dorky, but I did a lot of research about like so what because obviously there's no audio recordings, but like. Mm-hmm. Wh- what are the influences on um, language, spoken language in that region in that time period? So in other words, what is that accent going to sound like? And also what are their, what's the phraseology going to sound like? And so I worked really hard to like be able to talk like that. And, and so I've had a lot of people talk to me about that, that character when I'm in that character and they'll say like, wow, that, that character is really good or like, oh my gosh, like you are that person and they can't pinpoint like why it's so different. Mm -hmm. But, um, it's, it's sort of like, you know, like the wizard of Oz where it's like, like pay no attention to the, to the woman behind the curtain. Who's got like 47, like machines going like, yeah, I'll be with you in just a second. I'm going to formulate this sentence, but I need to think about 17 things before I figure out how to say it. Right. Like that, that excites me. I freaking love doing that. Like that's a mental exercise of joy for me. Well, what does that sound like? Oh my God. See, like I haven't put, uh, and it's so different to like be like dressed like this and like not be in a costume. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I played a, a, a character who, God, I don't even know if I can slip into that hmm. character well, here, but well, as a, as a, as a, as a, uh, a, a, a proper a proper southern gentleman out of out of place and out of time how might you address me young lady well now sir now now sir now you you clearly ain't from where i'm from in kentucky on the kind of uh the way you're speaking to me uh my recollection would be that you're from uh 
the panhandle of Florida or, or from the eastern south, uh, it ain't the same as somebody from Kentucky who's come from that that area there. Uh, my uh, my granddaddy, he come uh, first. He was a a, a redneck. Now, lots of folks don't know what that means, and they reckon it just means a hillbilly. Now, that is true. That's the truth. That's that's some folks that uh, uh, that come from uh, supporting uh, uh, King William, good King William, and they come over here, and uh, they come to the hills, and they're hillbillies. They're they're supporters of them. So, on kind of that, might see now. It's like <laughs> shit like that that you learn about, like. The derivation of words and phrases and, and things like, I love that. I, yeah. I uh, had a roommate when I lived in L.A. for like a year and a half who was from Canada. Um, and she was in California to like finish up her like uh, doctoral thesis at UCLA. And she was a linguist. And she worked with um, the first, uh, um, like, uh, what do you call them? First, first Nations tribes in mm-hmm. Canada of like that had like only like uh, I think they had to have like less than five uh, speakers still alive of their language and she would go to these like First Nations tribes and like live with them for a while and Mm -hmm. like record their language so that their language could live on and stuff like that. It's amazing. Um, And I was just like how did I never know like that was a thing? Like I didn't under I didn't have the kind of education growing up that prepared me to understand that there was like, like I think I took that that test that everybody takes in high school, or that they used to do to kids like me, like in the seventies <laughs> and eighties. And like you take, like answer these fifty questions, and we'll right. tell you the like two things that placement. you might, be, yeah. yeah. And I think mine was like, like teacher, which my mom was always like, you should just be a teacher. And I was like, fuck off, I hate <laughs> school. Like, why would I ever want to be? People hate teachers. Why would I want to be a teacher? And then like FBI agent, and I was like. <laughs> Like a teacher, an F, like certainly I can never pass a physical Undercover test. Undercover opportunities, though, yeah, right? Like <laughs> nobody ever suspects the ugly fat lady of being a spy. <laughs> I've got it. No, but like that was like, so like my choice is like a teacher. I didn't. I mean, I, I really fell into teaching on accident. <laughs> it wasn't something that I intended to do. Sure. Um, but I mean, still sounds like a pretty, pretty important, like, developmentally right a pretty important experience for you to go through right yeah i think it was it was important because i worked with a lot of emotionally disturbed kids and like honestly and and people who who do that to this day will tell you too that like people who get into that line of work don't do it unless they've got their own issues right like (laughs) i met some of the most fucked up people ever like teachers that's shocking uh, but i think it's true because i don't think that this sounds really weird to say, but I don't think that like your average Joe can work in those situations. They don't have the appropriate tools and defenses. Yeah, you can't. Like yeah. you have to have a, um, you have to have like a trauma sensibility. Sure. Right. Like I mean, like I had, uh, yeah. Like I, th- th- there's like messed up stuff. Like, and I never really. Um, like people say all the time, like, oh, that, that person's crazy. Like they're crazier. They act crazy. And you, you see movies and TV shows and you're just like, oh my gosh. But when you actually like are in front of someone who is having a, 
a mental episode. It is the most terrifying thing, especially if you yourself, like in your own life, have had moments when you're like, I recognize some of that. And then you're like, oh, my God, this could be me. And there's there's like that intersection that happens that just like it's scary as anything you'll ever experience in your life. And I think that you don't if you don't have that experience to draw on that kind of work is it's overwhelming. Um, I think like the average, the average special education in that, in that field, this, the average length of teaching time is three years. And I did it for eight and I, I was done by the time I was done. I think I was done before I was done. Um, Squoze it all out of you. huh? yeah, Yeah, it does. I mean like, you know, like I had, uh, one of the, like the, the craziest things that happened was that I had a kid who, I really love this kid too. He was really great. Um, and like for all intents and purposes, you would think like he's just a friggin' teenager, you know? Sure. Um, and he was, uh, he was a cutter. Mm. And so we like went through a couple different things, um, where we would do like contracts to try to stop that, that kind of behavior. And so, uh, we did a contract for like a month and he, he stopped, he stopped cutting. Like I would check him every day, like, pull up your sleeves. Let's see. You know, we'd go to, to the office and, like, he'd show me. And it was like, this is so great. I'm really proud of you. Like, this is fantastic. And then, like, a couple weeks after he had, had completed the contract, like, he started acting kind of weird. And I knew something was up. And I pulled him into the office. And I was like, what's, what's going on? And he was just like, no, it's fine. And I was like, are you, are you cutting again? And he was like, no, you know, I'm not. I'm not. And I was like, I, I knew there was something in me that knew. And I was like, uh, take off your shoes. And he was like, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. And I was like, take off your shoes. And you know, he was, he had started cutting between his toes so that nobody could check, you know, like it wasn't shown up on his arms. So like everything was looking cool. And, and so like he had a, a stepdad who was abusive and he had, uh, this stepdad had come back into the home and things were getting really bad. He was messing with the, the, the student's sister and everything. And, and so this, this kid was like on a, he was like on a fast track and I, I was calling like the, um, the department of social services and like the, the health department, like every day and like, you guys need to go in to this, you need to pull him and, and his sister out of the house. You need to get him out. Like, oh, we just did a check, like, six weeks ago. I'm like, you need to get back in there. Like, stuff is going down. So I'm, like, I'm, like, trying to advocate for him, but you're going through these systems. And and uh, in that in that time period, um, he goes home one day after school, and he's got a friend over, and um, the stepdad has a, a gun in the house. And so to, like, just, like, to be cool, he, like, gets out the gun and um, and he you know pops the clip and he shows like the clip is empty and they're just like playing with the gun and they're like in the living room and he um he like aims the gun at, at the kid and there's a bullet in the chamber which he didn't know to check and he shoots the kid in the head right there in his living room in front of the little sister and stuff and so so I get a phone call you know like a voicemail like hey I won't say his name like he's in he's in juvie like he shot a kid in the head like what are you talking about? You know? So like, then I'm trying, they're like, you need to get homework assignments and stuff like, 
oh my god like i need to put together homework for this kid who just yeah. shot his friend in the head you know in the great way to deal with know, the trauma <laughs> right but so like because he's going to be in juvie until he gets tried yeah. for you know whatever they decide to charge him with you know so like that was like one incident in like a series of incidents that happens and so you do you just like after a while you're just like this i can't i don't i don't know how to do this anymore you know and and like for myself personally like just my own you know like mental well-being struggles you know like it was overwhelming to like i got my own shit that i'm not dealing with and i'm right. and i'm you know trying to deflect that by dealing with all this other stuff and it was just not productive i can imagine but jesus christ like yeah <laughs> going going through that must have been huh. i i'd rather not i'd rather not uh Rather not even think about it, to tell you the truth. Yeah. I mean, it just breaks your heart. Sure. But it also puts things in perspective. Like, you're like, yeah, I never had to deal with that. Yeah. You know? Thankful for that. Yeah. Yeah. How, how are we doing on time, Ryan? I know we've probably, we've probably gone a pretty good clip at this point. We're doing great. we got plenty of time. Yeah? <laughs> time. Where's time? <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually dated somebody who did a similar thing and that just some of the stories I was hearing, I don't know how anybody can, can do that. And That's it's heavy. You, and you become immune to it too. Like, like I would be with like fellow teachers and we would be like at a party with like spouses and friends and stuff like that. And we'd be like unpacking the week or whatever. And you know, and you're just like talking oh. and you're like, Oh yeah, blah, blah, blah. And then I called this and then, and then like the parent and then like, you're talking to each other and then all of a sudden you realize that like people are just like, like, like staring at you listening to this and you're like, Oh no, it's totally fine. Like, it's totally fine. Like it's not, it's not, it's, it's great. It was a good week actually. Yeah. Yeah. Like seriously, nobody's dead. Like three kids in jail, but like otherwise so good. So good. Yeah. Whip out that gold sticker pad. Yeah, exactly. God. Well, yeah. onto onto a topic uh, that's that's a little less heavy. Um, <laughs> Sorry, no, that's okay. And and I've kind of brushed brushed up against it a couple of times here. And certainly, those who are watching the the video feed have seen the the glasses in front of oh, us. Yeah. But do you want cocktail you crafting? Want is oh, I need some more. I need yeah. some more eyes. But cocktail crafting is something that uh, that you've gotten into. As a as a an artistic expression, that's okay. Yeah, just some just some loud microphone sounds. No Sorry, deal. that's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, as long as nothing spills all over the equipment, Ghost. we're in great yeah. shape. No. That's <laughs> without the gold tapped. sticker pad. Yeah. That's it. Um, but uh, what? How long is that something that that you've been into, and how is that how has that manifested itself? I've only seen a little bit of it. Yeah. Uh, so I think like. Uh, how long have I been into it? I think there was always like sort of a secret desire f- from like a really, like probably like seven or eight years old. Like, you know, it'd be great. It'd be great to be a bartender. Like, <laughs> like, like it just like, it seemed like a cool thing as a little kid. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I, yeah. I always, I always kind of wanted to be Sam Malone. Right. Right. But like with a flair bartending juggly sort of a thing going I, on. And I, I was more like the, you know, like the, like the towel polish and like, so how you right. doing, Joe? You look a little down today. You know, like that was sort of like, like, but I had, uh, my dad's side of the family, um, I'm, I'm Irish, like Scott's Irish. And, um, they had a place up in the upper peninsula 
where we spent lots of like that's where we would spend our summers like right like 10 feet off lake michigan right in the woods but they in were the deep woods eh yeah yeah <laughs> yeah um and they were like super high functioning alcoholics like you didn't know that as a kid but like full on like they were retired like my great uncle and my great aunt they were retired so like they would start drinking at like noon right <laughs> so we'd we'd get up in the morning we'd have breakfast we'd go out into the woods to play we'd come back at lunchtime and they would be like on cocktails and like cheese and crackers and peanuts and they'd be like get a sandwich because you're not going to eat our peanuts like <laughs> so, and then like we'd leave and then we'd come back for like supper at like seven o'clock but they're like into cocktails right so I would always be like, oh, can I taste? I just want a little, you know. Blah, blah. So it's not like I started drinking when I was like a little kid. But there was something very, like I was like, oh, I'll have like a rocks glass with ice and apple juice, but just fill it like halfway. So I could like, like I'm drinking scotch or something, you know. Like there was always that, like I want to be a part of this. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, yeah, I think that was like kind of ingrained culturally into me but as far as like doing what I've been doing for the past six months it's really just been like the past six months so like I completely miss like I have a a, a friend who he's a um, a GM at a local restaurant bar restaurant and um, he was a, a bartender before at another a place that I went to pretty regularly and I would go like almost every weekend for like brunch I had like the corner like bar seat, you know, like it was like my thing. Like I would like come in and he'd be like, let me rush these bums off. There's like in your seat, you know? And it was like very special and everything. But, uh, he would be like, what are you, what are you going to drink today? And I'm a, I'm a gin drinker. Like that gin is my spirit of choice. And, but every once in a while I'll be like, let's mix it up. Like I had this idea, like what if you, we did this and this and this. And so he would like, he would, serve my whim and be like okay yeah tell me what you want me to put and we'd like create cocktails together which was totally fun and I was like I really enjoy this and I've always had a I think a kind of um a good palate and like I understand flavors together but so when the pandemic happened uh like we were sent home from work on March 14th Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it was like March 14th or March 15th, a coworker of mine was like, Hey, you know what you should do? Uh, you should create a cocktail just out of what you have on hand. Like you can't go to the store or anything, like whatever you have at home, like create an original cocktail. And I was like, challenge accepted. Mm -hmm. So I think the first thing I did was like, I made some ridiculous simple syrup with like 17 ingredients, like (laughs) complete bullshit. Like I'm like fig jam. Yes, please. (laughs) Like like, grapefruit rinds, like freeze dried. I don't know, like whatever, like I'm going to make this and, and it was fine, but it was that sparked it. And so then it became like a, I think I went for like, two and a half weeks without going to the store. So it was like, I'm going to clean out my pantry and I'm going to make crazy simple syrups. So I made some crazy simple syrups and, and like now how do I use this? Right. And, um, and then I started, uh, making some oldie timey cocktails with some, uh, hotel tango products. I noticed. Um, and, um, 
And that happened early on, which sort of like opened up the opportunity because I was also making cocktails straight out of uh, Jerry Thomas's Bartender's Guide. Nice. from like, Classic. You know, yeah. Which is like the, the sort of Bible yeah. of early cocktail guides, right? Like one of, not the, because I think there are some like very, very old, like ancient yeah. sort of like recipe books, but. Oh, absolutely. One, widely recognized as like one of the first like bar cocktail books. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's in the top three of like if you're a a true bartender, like you should at least know about this book sure. if you haven't cracked it. So I started making cocktails out of that book, which really led me to because I wanted to understand like where that cocktail had got its name or how it had come to be, led me to do a lot of research about, you know, like understanding too like spirits, like why why is, you know, why is rye not as popular as bourbon or, or, you know, American whiskey? And why, why is rum like white rum, the standard for, you know, America? And like, why, why is it not as popular? Like at one time, like rum was the drink, right? Right. Like their whiskey, like go to hell. Like it was rum. Right. And like why rye developed, right? Because people from, Scotland came over and you couldn't friggin' grow wheat in, you know, Pennsylvania in the wintertime. So mm-hmm. they started growing rye and then like they developed rye, you know, like, so like learning all these little things about it, which just sort of enriched my, my love for, um, alcohol sure. <laughs> and like cocktails. But I'd love, I'd love the alchemy of, of, of m- mixing a bunch of seemingly disparate things together sometimes. And having it come out to be something mm. special, especially when um, you have uh, an understanding of the base spirit, right? So you you understand it f- as a flavor profile, and then you try to, how do I elevate this or complement this or whatever? Um, that's, it's like a puzzle. It's like somebody else doing like a Sudoku or, yeah. you know, whatever. Like, yeah, I'm going to think about that for like three hours. Like, <laughs> how will adding, you know... How will adding coffee to gin change it? You know, like, how do you do that in the same way that, like, you throw whiskey and coffee willy-nilly? Like, how can you incorporate gin and coffee? What do you have to add to make it work together? Right. Right. What's that linking chain that makes it make sense? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that that is, that's definitely the most, the most gratifying element of, of, the the career in which I'm in now is is that that like playground of of flavor and then so like taking taking flavors that may not make sense in any sort of a like conceptual way to mm-hmm. to, to most people making them make sense and then adding additional dimensions of like okay well I've got this primary flavor now let's see if we can make it make sense with, you know, two or three other ingredients so it right. can be like a a full thing. And then like does that thing look nice because on some level like a especially at the level we're doing it here, you know, like a craft cocktail needs to look palatable. It has to have right. some sort of visual appeal and not just from the garnish itself, but from, you know, the liquid in the glass. Yeah. And then you've got that added dimension, uh, which is much more visual of the garnish itself. But does that garnish like have any sort of aroma? Does it have oils that 
affect the nose of the cocktail as you're about to take that first sip? Does it does the mere presence of that garnish affect the overall presentation of the cocktail? And if so, is that like a good or a bad thing? You right. know, do we need to? It, there are so many dimensions when it comes to creating a, a cocktail from the ground up with ingredients that you're also creating. Assuming most people are not like crafting their own spirits at home, but right. you know things like vodka infusions or even gin infusions, which is a much like much sketchier place to to dabble in because you've got an existing load of botanicals that you may not necessarily know, you know, top to bottom what they are. So you might have right. some, you know, like, can you taste the Angelica root in there? Maybe, you know, have you tasted Angelica before? You know, probably right. not. So, right. Um, so learning how to like interact with all those things is, is, you know, it's a lot of fun. It's, it is very much like a very strange puzzle. Um, but to me, I kind of process it as like, like sound, almost like music, like, like a, like a, like a stanza from a, from an orchestral work. It's like, yes, all of the supporting characters are here, but it's missing this like baseline to support everything and, and bring up some of those, yeah. uh, you know, higher or more subtle notes. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a blast, man. And I think that you're, that you're doing a, a pretty good job ha- having only, you know, six or so months of experience really digging deep yeah. into it. But, Thanks. but it is, you, you are right. It is very fascinating from like that nerd angle of, of digging into the history and how, I mean, it's just like language has moved, you know, like geographically throughout the planet. Right. Alcohol and its development has, has moved in a similar way, just, you know, along trade routes and, and, you know, as, as a very necessary health supplement, you know, on long voyages and, you know, there's a lot of really deep and fascinating history, especially when you like get into the realm of like talking about guys like Jerry Thomas and like, you know, some of the, some of the classic American bars, like I, I can't remember the name of it, but one of my favorite, uh, like bar stories of old is um, there was a, there was a place where uh, it it was, it was a bar. It was like very, very well beloved, but there was kind of a demented twist um, where like the place was essentially loaded with hyper dangerous practical jokes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like the, like the staircase, if you went up to the second floor um, and, uh, on your on your trip back down, if you were the unlucky soul who uh, the guy in the in the hidden booth uh, selected, he's hitting a, a a button, and the stairs are turning into a slide, and you might break your arm like lots and lots of other people did. Um, so I mean, like people people broke bones. No. I think I think eventually someone someone wound wound up passing away. Like, but just a bunch of great, like Jerry Thomas used to have, uh, like a pair of white rats that he would bark, like they would perch on his shoulder while he was bartending and he would like stir his drinks with a finger, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Stuff that sounds super gross by modern standards of like hygiene and, and, and cleanliness, especially in a, like in a post COVID era. Right. But, but, uh, on some level, super charming. <laughs> yeah. No, there's definitely, uh, there's lots of things about the past that, yeah. that simultaneously make you want to vomit, but also like hug. How cute. <laughs> yeah, like, and that's disgusting. A, that's adorable. Oh, 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 oh. It's like, yeah. look at you with your nose falling off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh boy. 
Um, wow. I'm, I'm definitely reaching a point to where I'm feeling, I'm feeling the effects of a long conversation. It, it never fails. There's a point where like you just kind of get mentally zapped for for talking for so long. And I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, stretch too much for, for keeping the conversation going. But, um, what would you say if you looking at where you're at right now with, Mm -hmm. The level of creative output that you've got um, with what you do for a career um, and then all the the stuff that you know you do to kind of su- support yourself otherwise right just in terms of making sure that it's not all just a job right right what's if you ha- if you had your druthers if if everything was was picture perfect from here moving forward what would you say is the ideal of what's next for you oh man I mean, like if 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 reality didn't matter, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to go down this hole. <laughs> no, but it's not, and and don't get too excited because it's not even like that crazy. Sure, but sure, like, sure. really, like dream wise, and I think it would have to be something that like happened like maybe like four times a year because I, again, like once you start to do something creative, like just for a job, you start to lose, I think, some of your passion, right? Like if you, if you have to do it on a deadline for somebody else, then it, for, for me anyway, it loses some of the excitement around it. But if I did it like four times a year, what I would love to do is, um, is to design, um, to, to curate an historical multi-course meal for a small group of people, like, like 12 to 20 people, like no more than 20, um, where I have done the research that I've created the menu, that things go together, that it's purposeful, that it's seasonal, that it is, um, as historically appropriate and accurate as possible, that tastes good, um, and is accompanied by, you know, um, a sharing of the knowledge that it took to present that and how those foods arrived here and what they're about and you know the same with beverages um to and and present that to people who were as equally interested in that kind of shit as me like i would love to do that like four times a year i don't think i could do it more than four times sure. a year but to be able to do that and you know charge people enough so that it 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 didn't necessarily make me money but like paid for my effort and for that meal so sure. that i'm not you know, putting out out of pocket right. to make it happen for other people. That would be like, I could do that for the rest of my life and be like super thrilled by that. I don't think you could do it four times a year and have it like pay your bills, but, right. but like, I would love to do that. I love, I love food. I love history. I love, uh, cocktails. I love, um, feeding people. I love teaching um, and, and I think that there's an artistry, just like you were saying with, with a cocktail or food cooking, you know, like sure. there's art in that and like being able to create that way, it combines a bunch of different things for me. And yeah, I, I mean, reality, not aside, I think that that's, I mean, given, given the, the current nature of pop-up food businesses i mean we've yeah. got a pop-up burger joint that operates like one or two sundays a month in town that 
is like wicked successful and they're just making burgers and not to disparage those guys that I'm not going to mention by name, but I mean, there's a lot of places to get a burger, you know, it's not exactly like a new concept. It's just like some really cute branding and sure they're like food looks delicious on Instagram, but a lot of food looks delicious on Instagram, you know? (laughs) <laughs> you know, I've not tried the product, so I can't say, but something like that, that actually, okay. So just before shutdown, I was lucky enough to uh, take my wife and come and come and experience uh, the, the historical dinner that um, is, is offered by, by your employer. Yeah. <laughs> and not, not only was that, Good I job. Mean, Good job. <laughs> But I mean, that's, that's like a full blown like thing, you know, when there are a lot of people involved and it's like a, it's like an immersive experience and it was amazing, but I could have also had that exceptional meal with a couple of drinks and Mm -hmm. just had a, like a conversation, right. Um, that was administered by someone like you and still gotten, still gotten off on all that knowledge that like, I'd like just soaked up in that evening without all the extra bells and whistles, which were fantastic. And I loved every minute of, right. But like, you know, if, if, if it's something that you can like spend some time put together, maybe ask some sort of like outside party for some, for some capital to make it a, you know, an actual thing, get it off the ground. Like, I, I don't know, man, I think that's got legs. I think, I think that's the type of thing that you could do, four times a year here in Indy and four times a year in like Seattle. And I mean, like you could, that's, you could take that on the road, take it on you the know? Road. I mean, I, yeah. I think, I think that that's just as, as plausibly executed as anything else. So, you know, yeah. Some, some food for thought. Yeah, no, but definitely. Oh, hey, oh, you like that? Oh, I just <laughs> at least yeah, it wasn't was, a dick joke this time. I was, I was thinking so much that yeah. the pun completely went over my head. I've, I've been like outright polite this, this episode. Yeah, completely <laughs> unnecessary. Let me say, like, it's, I, I it's probably just because I have respect for you. No, please. <laughs> I think that that's the opposite is true. If you had respect, you'd have been like, I don't know. Well, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, you know, you, you, we, our, our mutual connection is Johnny. Like, where's, <laughs> where's the respect line there? Like, let's not pretend who Johnny is or uh, isn't. Well, he, hey, he's a, he's a, he's a totally no. different boy these days. He's a, he's a he's, good guy. He's, he's gotten his life together in a, in a lot of really yeah. shocking ways. Uh, that's unfair. Not gotten his life together. I wouldn't say that his life was necessarily apart, but he's a uh, he's, he's matured. He's smoothed out some edges. Yeah, he has matured a bit. He's a good boy. I love that guy. Well, he's a good guy. Okay, so historical food. Anything else artistically? The next great American screenplay. Uh, you know, I have like. I I continue to have my unfinished novel that sits that I that I go back to every once in a while, which I think like someday, right? And uh, there's a couple plays that I have that are about halfway written that I would like to finish. Sure. Um, but right now I am so I'm actually through from the urging of 
of uh, friends and acquaintances on on Facebook. Um, I am actually putting together like a book of uh, like cocktails and some of my I um, so like like I post my cocktail creations, but then I also sort of post like a story about them or like just like I rant a little bit and it's <laughs> it's fairly unfiltered and um usually I I drop at least a single F bomb if not more and, and sometimes it's worse than that. And so um but I think people like they like they're amused by it, which is my intention. Sure. And uh so the clamor has been like you need to put these together in a book with like this stuff but also create some new stuff. So I'm actually working on that right now, just like completely like one of those like like blurb kind of things where sure. like I'm going to put together the book and then I can sell it through Amazon and it's going to cost me more money than it costs anybody else to buy it but <laughs> like whatever um so I'm doing that and and who knows like I just like like little things like that that like someone wants to experience that that's great if I can give you that and that makes you happy fantastic like I I created that happiness for you and that fulfills me right well, I'm very, very excited for for when that's finally a thing that I can that I can myself dig into and and put to <laughs> put to good and wholesome use. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, um, oh man, there was another thing. There was another thing that was just right there, and now it's slipped right out of my grasp. But that's okay. I'll forgive myself for it. Um, um, oh, I okay. Just a couple of a couple of quick points, and then we'll and then we'll wrap this up. Okay. I I wanted to ask, and and something part of my motivation for asking you earlier about um, when you were when you were a young person who was filled with all of this creative energy and didn't necessarily get all of the support that might have propelled you uh, a bit a bit farther, a bit faster. What my motivation for asking is because I am the father of of three small lady humans Mm -hmm. and uh, all have loads of, of their own different flavors of creativity. One in particular who is just, just like, as you described, she creates because she doesn't have any other option. It's, it's just something that is, that is deeply encoded into her DNA. What advice can you give to me or to, to other parents of, of artistic children, what, what do you think could have made a difference or could make a difference for, for others? Yeah. I mean, like, honestly, I think that just, if I had not been told so often or had it not been implied to me so often that art was like a secondary Mm -hmm. thing, that art was a thing that you do after you do the thing that's important right mm-hmm. um or meaningful or purposeful um that i i think i would have felt different sure. and i don't you know like i it's it's easy to look back and say i didn't have supportive parents but like like i said like if if i if i said i wanted like i want to paint like can i get paints for christmas right like i got i would get like an acrylic paint set you know or if I, like, one year I asked, I was like, I want a, a Super 8 camera, you know? Mm-hmm. And they were just like, what 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 are you going to do with that? I'm like, don't worry about it. Like, just get it for me, right? You know? Sure. And so, like, so like I was given opportunities, but there wasn't a lot of support of those other than, like, here's a supply, right? 
but I think if I had had parents who had uh, sort of said like, well, you know, like engaged in my desire for for art or like had taken me to museums like I we didn't go like we went to like Greenfield Village, you know, like in Michigan, which is where I grew up. Right. But we didn't go to museums otherwise. I went to museums in Detroit with my great aunt who was an artist, you know, sure. like and loved art and like she gave that influence and if that had been a part of my regular experience to like see different kinds of art and experience different kinds of art that I would have seen other possibilities and I think the most important thing for parents and this I'm I'm an asshole because I don't have any kids right and so I'm giving parental advice but <laughs> as a damaged you child, were a child yeah once. yeah your, your <laughs> advice is just as valid as a an end product child um, what I would say is that when you have a kid who's creative, um, as instead of dismissing that creativity or, or, um, sort of categorizing that, that creativity outside of what their regular experience mm-hmm. is, where you can incorporate it in their everyday life and educate yourself, you know, learn and experience about new art yourself so that you can share that with your child and, and when they're moved by something or excited by something, to have a conversation about what excites you about this, what moves you about this. You know, that engagement that when they're having an emotional experience, which is what they're having when, sure. when you experience art that you're excited about, that's an emotional experience. There's, whether you recognize what it is that the connection is, there's a connection there. So engage that connection. Sure. And I guarantee that that not only just like that child may not be an artist, but they're going to feel more fulfilled by that emotional engagement with their parent um, for, you know, for the long haul, not necessarily even about art, but just like that there's that engagement on an emotional level and those emotions are there. And I think if I, if I had had some of that and my parents had been people who were creative and had ideas about like, geez, maybe you can go into graphic art or maybe you can go into, like, look at this kind of art. Just avenues that were available, right? You didn't have to walk me down them, but just educating me to know that they were there by educating yourself, so. uh, Solid. No, that's, I mean, that's super, super valid and exactly the type of thing that, that I was looking for. And luckily, I feel like I'm probably checking most of those boxes, but... And and really, like, stepping back and thinking about it, I could probably adjust my approach a bit, right, as a parent. Because I like to, when my children express interests or beliefs, I have a tendency to to question them, to try and and figure out the root of what it is that's driving that. But I feel like it probably comes across as more like a quiz, when -hmm. really it's me, like, just challenging them and trying to, like, trying to reinforce, you know, what it is that they're that they're doing, but also deep in my own understanding. But I feel yeah. like I could probably just be a little bit more, uh, a little bit more, you know, uh, just I don't know, pa- passive in a more passive in in, in that specific I, thing at least. I think it's like kids don't feel the de- the desire or the necessity to. Um, to quantify their emotions, mm-hmm. right? It's like, it makes my wiener hard or my tummy feels funny or like, like it just like, it makes my smile happen or like, and that's right. like enough because like that is a full experience, right? Yeah. But if you start breaking it down and like asking them to quantify it, like, well, like what makes your tummy feel funny? Like how does your tummy feel funny or when did it start or did it, is it still going on? Like then it becomes like, like 
uh, am I doing it wrong or should I do it different? Or maybe I shouldn't tell you next time because mm. you're bumming me out right. like, with your questions, right? right? So I think like that's a mistake that people make with little kids. And I, I think I, I see that for myself. Like sometimes it's just like super great to just like when a kid is like expressing that emotion or it's like, like to, to like be with them and just be like, yeah, me too. <laughs> like, and just like let it, that be enough. Sure. Like, like I get it. Like my tummy feels funny sometimes too. It's not this, it doesn't, this doesn't do it for me, but like I get, I get your tummy feels funny right now. Like, yeah, I understand that. Just harmonize with them a little bit. Yep, exactly. Take, take the old Mr. Rogers approach. I'm always thinking about Fred Rogers when I think about these, yeah. these sorts of uh, valuable life lessons. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, okay. Well, and then kind of on the, the other end of, uh, the, no, not the other end of the spectrum. That's not, that's not accurate at all because there's not a spectrum that at one end is parents of children and the other is like (laughs) creatives or would be creatives. (laughs) That's that's a really fucking weird spectrum. And what's in between there? (laughs) Yeah. Factory work. Like that's so on a on a totally different uh, level, but tangentially related. Um, what sort of advice might you give someone who's maybe lost in the wash of of their own creativity without uh, without any any direction? An adult person who maybe harbors familial resentments uh, of the the hindrance, you know that 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 they experienced, or I mean. So, just someone who is not creating to their potential or their their need. Yeah, that's a hard one. I mean, because I think like I've I've lived in that you know that shed before, sure. right? And it's like it's a horrible place to live, but it's also super comfy, right? <laughs> it becomes really comfortable. You make yeah. it home, and I think um, for for me, like the thing that's really important, and I think the place that I've come to in my life from like having like really lofty creative goals and like expectations for myself and, and like, like ideas of what it means to be successful artistically. Um, you have to come to an understanding of like, uh, if you're doing art for some other reason, other than, um, connection, then number one, think for a little bit about why you're producing art because I don't, I'm not, you know, like if it's motivated by something else, then connection, I question your motives personally. That's just me. That's, that's me. Sure. Um, but so if that's, if that's why you want to produce artists, cause you want to connect with people you want to make them experience or understand or, or, um, laugh or, or whatever, then you have to, you have to live in a realm of like, one person is enough. Right. And, and sometimes you're that one person and that can be enough. Like I, I have a, I have a play that I wrote like, like 15 years ago. Nobody wants to fucking produce this play. And I love this play. I don't know why it's ridiculous. It's stupid. But like, I go back like at least once a year and I read it and I laugh my ass off at certain parts and I'm like, oh my God, this is great. This is hilarious. <laughs> um, but nobody will produce it, right? They read it and they're like, it's super weird. Or like people who like it are like not in a position to be able to produce it. 
I still love that piece. It's a valid piece of art. Sure. And, and it bums me out that I can't share it with a whole bunch more people, but also like it's still valid and it's good and I created it and I'm proud of it and I will continue to read it again and I'll continue to occasionally show it to people who probably can never produce it or won't produce it. Sure. And I'll still laugh every time that, you know, I read that exchange or whatever. And, and I think that that's artistic expression is so much about, I think, um, like your value base, right? So it like, it, it so much depends on why you're doing it. And if you're doing it, for money or you're doing it for adulation or something like that, then there's probably way easier ways to accomplish those goals. If you're doing it for connection, then again, you just have to know that like one is enough, even if it's yourself. If you, if you create something that speaks to you in a way that elicits your emotion when you re-experience it, then that's, that's fucking art, man. That's fantastic. You, you did it. Yeah. You know, that, just doing the thing definitely should be good enough. Yeah. I mean, I, I think even like sometimes slogging it, like, yeah, like sometimes you just have to slog through. Yeah. Right. I mean, and that, that's okay. Yeah. Like uh, I think at least in my own personal life, some of those moments where, and not necessarily like creatively, but, but I mean, even just literally like a physical like situation where it's like, well, the only way to like be done with this is just to like get through with it. So yeah, I mean, digging, digging deep, like going through some of that, like deep internal turmoil of like having to talk yourself through, like just getting done with the thing. Usually on the other side of that is a lot of, a lot of, like self-realization, self-actualization, just a lot of, a lot of rewards that you may not have even come close to coming by otherwise. So yeah. I think there's a lot of value in that. And I think there's also a lot of value in when you have a, a piece of work. And this is kind of a theme that we touched on with, I think maybe Colby, Colby Holmes from, uh, from one of our first episodes, episode three, episode three. Um, sometimes, and Colby's a, a musician, and uh, we were we were speaking on um, the length of time that sometimes it takes for musicians to create a piece, just a, just a single song. And I think he referred to maybe a song that he, unless I'm misremembering, I think he referred to a song that he, and actually Jessica Heckel as well, um, referred to songs that they had kind of in the cooker, something that they'd been working on for a really long time and yeah. it just never felt right or just, you know, the stars didn't line up or whatever. But then all of a sudden, 11 years later, you know, it's just it, that right moment happens. Right. So even if you've got a, if you've got a, a script for whatever that maybe isn't, you know, timeline wise, right for right now, you know, it doesn't, that doesn't invalidate the importance of the piece and it doesn't, you know, and, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't take away from anything. It just means that, just means that it's not ready for right now. And yeah. sometimes, sometimes it's been ready all along and it was just only ever supposed to be for you. Right. Right. But even that, like you said, that's, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I like the, I like the sense of like general, like self absolution, you know, the, 
I think that that uh, that's a that's a strong sort of catharsis for a lot of artists. You know, for, forgive yourself. Yeah, <laughs> what you did was good enough, even if it only makes you happy. Right. Right. <laughs> wow. Well, Kim, that's all I've got. You got anything else? I I got nothing. Well, where would you like for people to to come and see what you're what you're doing? Maybe follow along with the rest of your cocktail book journey as you yeah sure uh like uh probably the easiest place the most accessible place is uh uh instagram okay. uh kim.indie and it's a public account so just like it sounds right yep yep it's, a, it's an easy easy one to yeah to search up yeah and uh yeah i think uh i mean i without being specific i would say go and those museums that are open um, support them when and how you can because museums are important, man, and they are struggling hard right sure. now. Um, not that everybody isn't struggling, but uh, once a museum closes down, it's not going to open up again. It will be gone because it just it doesn't operate like that, you know. Yeah. So, um, if you care about those institutions in this in this state in this city, um, give them a little bit of love where where you can right now. Yeah, slide some slide some donation dollars. Go and pay a visit if it's legal and responsible to do so, and yeah. uh, get some culture, get some history, get some art loving. Yeah, and uh, you know, expand yourself. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, Ryan, you got anything to tag onto that before we wrap it up, bro? No, sir. But this was great. I, yeah. I really like the way that you um, articulated a lot of the same stuff that I think about and experience myself and. I like the way that you just lay it all out there and i think i think people enjoy this one yeah well, thank yeah. you thanks i, I th- enjoyed it yeah. i think it uh i think people will definitely kind of kind of relate to your story and and hopefully draw a lot of inspiration because from where i said i think that you're an outright success and i'm thankful that you exist and i'm thankful that you do the things that you do and i wish we would have taken the time to like read 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 the poem that i just read on your facebook page jesus <laughs> like anyway thank you so much you're welcome and and thank you dear listener or viewer for joining us on this epic voyage of of artistry and uh and uh historical depictions and cocktailing <laughs> and whatnot yeah uh keep your eyes peeled for kim's cocktail book whenever that's finished and we'll definitely be sure to to post that around sweet yeah okay cool bye